0: You're on the Plants Grow Here podcast. I'm Daniel Fuller. Come along with me as we enter a hidden world of deep horticultural, ecological and landscape gardening knowledge with featured experts, industry professionals and enthusiasts. Cranbourne Gardens are Victoria's Royal Botanic Gardens with a focus on showcasing, preserving and researching Australia's native flora. In this episode, horticulturist Marie Velthoven and horticulture team leader Russell Lark take us on an audio tour around the gardens. You'll get a lot more out of your Cranbourne visit if you listen to this episode prior to or while visiting the gardens. But it's also just a great listen if you've got no intention of ever visiting the gardens at all, because it's pure plant love from start to finish. Welcome to the show, guys.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks, mate. Thanks for having us.
0: So let's start, as we're driving into the site from the main road, we kind of drive through some wildlife tunnels. Can you tell us about those wildlife tunnels that are the first thing that we pretty much see in the garden?
1: Yeah. So um, on the drive-in, it's quite um, a long drive. When you get to the um, entrance gates, you've actually still got quite a bit to drive through because we're surrounded by such a big um, conservation bushland. Um, And we have a separate team called the Natural Areas team who um, kind of headed up This project and would know a lot more detail than me, but basically, um, to reduce the amount of kind of roadkill that was happening with cars driving through the conservation area, um, they set up these wildlife tunnels and they kind of have, so now we have fences along the edges of the driveway and they kind of guide the animals towards the entrance of the tunnels and then they can go under the road like a little, well, I mean, a tunnel, (laughs) but like a little wildlife (laughs) highway so they can cross the road without being on the road in danger of the cars and they can get to the other parts of the bushland.
2: There's been some amazing footage of even koalas going through. We've had bandicoots, we've had echidnas, wombats, some of, some of the reptiles. So it's, it's proved to be um, super effective. And, and the team... At Cranbourne, it's, uh, it's Trisha Stewart, who's the team leader of um, Natural Areas, has been rolling this out across other shires as well. So it's actually um, kind of a first in Victoria having a go at these kind of road ecology projects, which is pretty exciting. So other shires and councils are, are getting involved, which is which is nice.
0: That is awesome.
1: Yeah, it's really cool, and I mean, obviously, it's um, yeah been really popular. They just put in a couple of starter ones to see how it went, um, and obviously the results were really great. But also, when you put up um, video black and white kind of security camera footage of these tunnels, and you've got like a wombat's butt wriggling through, <laughs> I mean, everyone gets on board. It's so cute.
3: <laughs> totally,
0: and I guess one of the things, as someone who doesn't do this professionally, like this is the first time I've really ever thought about this properly of the wildlife tunnels, but. So the predators don't just sit there at the tunnel and waiting for the wombats to come through or the little marsupials.
2: No, not not as yet. And look, the team here does um, a lot of work on you know the pred- predator-proof fence and and looking after the you know fox population and cat population and all that sort of stuff. So it's a major focus for the team. They've done they've done a really good job at keeping predators quite low at Cranbourne, mm-hmm. which is why um, you know the the southern brown bandicoot that's a, a, a little endangered. Um, omnivorous mammal um, is doing so well here because it doesn't have that kind of outside pressure. So, so far so good, mate.
0: That's awesome. All right. So we've driven through the entrance. We're at the car park at the entrance of the gardens now. So what do we see as we walk through the admin part into the gardens? What are we looking at?
2: So this is what we call the the postcard moment. So as you, as you come down the stairs through the visitor centre, you see um, what's known as the Red Sand Garden. Mm. So this is a huge expanse of um, red sand, obviously, um, and it, it's basically designed to kind of invoke the spirit of central Australia, that kind of quintessential mm. um, Australian image, I guess, um, and on the red sand we have these kind of discs of... Um, Great foliage, which is sort of designed to to talk about the Blue Bush Country or, or Spinifex Country and that sort of stuff. So it, it's really an introduction to Australia. That's that's what that design's set up to do. Um, and and basically the the kind of overarching story of the Australian garden is the the story of water. Um, so we tell it from that first moment when you see the red sand, where it's um, really dry, um, and then and then we start out chasing the water through the Australian landscape through the through the ephemeral systems through the dry riverbed through the um, gorge systems all the way to, to the kind of coastal plains and the estuaries and that sort of stuff so it is it is definitely the the most photographed part of the garden <laughs> everyone wants to come down and get a photo with the with the family um, and, and it's something that you know I think for people who might not have time to, to go to central Australia they can still kind of get that feeling when they come to the Australian garden which is, which is pretty nice.
0: Totally. You've also got some little um, mock salt plains there too. As you say, it's the beginning of the of the water story.
1: Mm. Yeah, it's like, um, I guess, yeah, the start of the story of water in Australia. Um, and if you're starting from the centre in Australia, a crucial part of that is the complete absence (laughs) of water (laughs) Um, but where where there's like a viewing deck of the red sand so you can get pretty close you can't go on it but you can get pretty close and below um, it's what we call the ephemeral sculpture Um, and they're kind of white concrete kind of waves kind of set in the red sand and they basically represent um, salt pans that would be left behind after um, large bodies of water dry up in arid areas. And based on you know that we've got these these concrete things that look like salt pans, and when Russell was talking about the the grey circles, it's a really you know it's an artistic um, representation. You know it's it's um, the the circles kind of decrease in size as they go back towards the back of the red sand. So to try and trick your eye to think that it's a lot more vast than it is, that the circles at the back are really tiny, but you think they're just really far away. Um, and instead of spin effects, we had to choose something that grows. Fine in Cranbourne without us having to irrigate it, so we chose some uh, variegated Westringias that look grey from a distance, but you can't really get that close to see that it's not um, a, a, a um, spin effect. So yeah, it's a really cool artistic representation of the the red centre.
0: Completely agree, Russ. You were going to say something.
2: Oh, I was just going to say, with the ephemeral garden, it's it's really designed to be. Um, beautiful and floriferous you know in those ephemeral systems you get a lot of those um, kind of annuals those little herbaceous annuals that are really pretty so um, it's kind of in contrast to the 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 big expanse of the red sand garden you have this off to the left this really pretty flowery um, spectacular landscape so it's um, a really nice thing that that visitors get exposed to that straight away you know they get straight into the flowers and um, it kind of sets up their visit I reckon to to wander around the garden.
0: Yeah, because I guess the first thing you walk in, uh, uh, the big expanse that we're talking about, there the red plains. You know, that yes, it's a botanic gardens, but there's a distinct lack of plants in that in that. Garden. Yeah. Well, not a lack of plants, but there's open spaces with no plants, which is a, a very interesting and I think a great choice.
2: Yeah, and I think it, interestingly, the Australian garden is quite a heavily landscape garden. It's quite a, mm. a strong landscape, so there's a lot of um steel and um, hard landscape features. So it, it's a very different experience to say going going somewhere like um, Melbourne with the, the rolling plains of grass and the grassy knolls and all of that sort of stuff. It's um, like heavily landscaped and, um, you know, the, the plants are kind of used to, to soften that landscape and it can kind of, it's sort of designed to invoke the, the spirit of some of those gorge systems and some of those, you know, really old, hard landscapes of Central Australia.
0: Totally. So let's continue on with the story of water, shall we? So I guess we, as we walk around anti-clockwise to our right, the first thing we sort of see is this giant, I guess, a waterway, an artificial waterway system. Can you tell us about that, guys?
1: Uh, Yeah, so... um when you do turn yeah we'll we'll take it the story of water does take a right turn after the visitor center um and when you go down that path we've got a couple of different ways you can take so on the right hand side we've got a row of display gardens and on the left we've got this um we call it the rock pool waterway um and at the start right next to um the red sand we have um some water bubblers um this, like this source pool of water um and they flow up and they fill the source pool and then it runs down this um giant really long rock pool waterway how long would you say it is russ i don't know 100 meters
3: yeah probably 100 yeah yeah it's
1: quite long and um kids can play in there you know it's like it's kind of wading depth um and we've got some like um you can swim between the flags you know we've got some life saving flags in there as well um but every so often um maybe every hour or so um the bubble is turned off and the source pool empties and that rock pool Waterway is kind of like um, on kind of a little slant. It all like runs off the edge into the lake and that completely dries up um, and then it waits a little while and then the bubble is turned back on again and it's kind of just like a bit of a reminder, part of the story of water that, you know, it's a really precious um, resource and we don't always have it. Um, and so, yeah, letting it turn off and dry up while you're playing in it is, I don't know, hopefully makes people think about that. <laughs>
2: And and I just wanted to add with the Rockpool Waterway, it's um, so you know in the red centre we've got the Great Artesian Basin. Um, so the Rockpool Waterway is also kind of a, a vague representation of um, those springs where some of that water kind of escapes to, to ground level, which um, is kind of nice.
0: Yeah, totally. And it is interesting, like when the water stops at the top, that's not when it's empty at the bottom, right? So by the time the sprinklers start at the top again, almost that water's just sort of finished at the bottom and then, yeah. you know, we start filling it all the way up again. That, yeah. Wood, um, what did you call it? The Pebble, the Pebble Creek? What, what's it
1: called? Uh, Rockpool Waterway.
0: Rockpool Waterway. Yeah.
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> it's a great name for it.
3: Yeah.
2: It's a real highlight for the families so on a hot day, you know, to be able to get, get your feet wet and, and hang out with the kids, it's certainly, um, it's the mecca of the Australian garden if it's nice and warm, that's for sure.
0: Yeah. So I went there recently again with my parents-in-law and my wife and yeah, it was full of kids playing and it was a beautiful hot day and everyone was just having a good time and there yeah. were definitely conversations about the water happening. Like it was a teaching moment for some parents that, and I saw that more than once was that the parents were teaching, yeah, well, this is what happens. Yeah. The water's here yeah. and then it's gone. Yeah, yeah. that's
1: really cool. Um and then, yeah, opposite that, the whole walk along when you're going down the Rockport Water Bay, um, you can duck off to the right every so often and we've got a row of um, display gardens. So um, when you walk around, you kind of notice that the whole of the Australian garden, um, which is what we call the landscaped area, which is inside this um, Surrounding conservation zone. It's kind of split into two types of gardens. So we've got naturalistic gardens that kind of display the diversity of Australian flora. It's all mostly focused on southeast um, Australian species. Um, And the gardens kind of represent, um, you know, correct associated species that you'd find in the wild that are representing these different areas. Um, And then we have gardens which we say, you know, compared to nature, these are the nurture, the display Mm. gardens. So, they're smaller display gardens um, and they're in kind of different styles designed to inspire home gardeners or landscapers to maybe see local flora, you know, presented in different contexts and different styles um, and maybe use Australian natives at home or in their project. So, Next to the Rockpool Waterway, we have a series of a few different um, of these display gardens, Um, you know, different pruning techniques, um, water saving techniques, uh, different kind of um, we've got one garden called the Future Garden, which is different beds that are color coded and they try to use um, plants that are readily available from nurseries. So if you do see something that you like, you know, it's not something that's gotten Mm. from the top of a mountain somewhere. It's something that you can go and buy from the shops and put it in your home garden as well.
0: I mean, we do have some of those mountaintop plants as well that we'll talk about them shortly.
1: We do. That's a little bit later <laughs> down the track. Yeah, these these ones are very accessible.
0: <laughs> so I guess these these beds that you're talking about, there are some beds that, you know, um, are from Tasmania, different different micro regions within Tasmania and different microclimates and it's interesting to see, you know, which plants you put on the, on the eastern side or northern side or, you know, whatever, you know, obviously as a horticulturist that's quite important.
1: Yeah, so um, there you're talking about what we call the diversity garden and it's a big row and it's split into lines um, and every row is a different um, bioregion of Australia and a couple of plants that um, represent that bioregion are planted in there. And it is a bit of a challenge for the um, Machu who curates that garden at the moment um, because, you know, you've got different bioregions that have such different kind of environments and climates, but mm-hmm. they're on the same irrigation system and are both planted <laughs> in cranburn soil. So <laughs> they have to kind of – it's a bit tricky to uh, choose the right plant. But, yeah, you can go along there and find the, you know, region that you're on holiday from and see if you recognise plants. <laughs>
0: Totally. So I guess the display gardens are a little bit further along, right?
1: Yes, that's right. Yep, yep. As you walk all the way along the Rockport Waterway after the diversity garden, um, all those different, yeah, gardens. There's a water-saving garden which is kind of terraced into several different levels. So the plants at the top, you know, it might give you inspiration if you do live on maybe um, a hill or, you know, a terrace garden. Mm. Um, plants at the top don't require too much water because when it rains or there's an irrigation event, the water is going to kind of sheath off um, and the plants at the very bottom require a bit more irrigation so they're going to collect all of the rain um, and all of the irrigation that you're pumping onto it so you can get an idea of um, how much water those plants need by which level they're on
2: and it, it, it starts to build those conversations about sustainability and and you know if if you're an Aussie, you talk about water you can't you can't help it like how much did it rain last night um how dry was the summer you know it, it kind of um Evokes that emotion from people, um, so it's it, it's nice when you, you you get set up with the the story of water and then understand how to kind of integrate that into your your own life and your own garden. Um, and people are becoming increasingly aware of um, building sustainable gardens and that sort of stuff. So that's kind of where we have that um, that conversation throughout that garden.
0: Totally. So one of those display gardens that we were talking about. It has uh, a native turf. Now, was that easy or difficult? What was the story there, guys?
2: That was a challenge. Um, (laughs) So I think it it is a, um, it's Hamathria Ansanata, um so it's a it's it's actually a local grass so it grows in um kind of wetter areas around like a lot of the flood mitigation areas you see Hamathria 3 popping up um so because it was local and it's stoloniferous um it was kind of identified as a pretty good candidate to have a crack at um growing and seeing how it how it went so it's look it's been really successful the only thing it struggles with a little bit is um heavy traffic um mm. so so we've been trying a few different techniques like overseeding with a whole bunch of other um grass species microlenas um you know wallaby grasses uh, that sort of thing. Um, so, look if you if you're looking and and not playing rugby on it, it's, a, it's been really really nice and really effective. Um, it's just still got a little bit of work to do as far as um, trafficking. So it's not it's not going to hold up the same way you know a kaiku does or something. But if you're if you're just building a beautiful native garden and you're just sitting out there um, and and enjoying your garden, then it'd be a perfect candidate to mm. to get into home for sure.
0: I think it's so important to take those risks and experiment because, you know, as a botanic gardens people are watching what you're doing whereas if I did it as a home gardener and it was a success, who cares? Like nobody knows. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And look, for for us that's one of the cool things about um being a horticulturalist at the gardens, you get to try um and bring all of these things into cultivation and and in in different contexts as well. So the, there's the lawn one, but we you know we'll grow rare and threatened species that have never been brought into cultivation and and understanding mm. their kind of horticultural potential and properties and all of that sort of stuff is really cool. Um, it's a it's a fun part of the job, you know. So yeah, they're, they're, we've got a whole bunch of projects looking at um, you know trying to introduce some of these species into into cultivation and testing their their horticultural attributes like their you know flowering times or whether or not they're pest and disease resistant or whether they can you know handle a variety of soils and all that sort of stuff maybe we we'll probably touch on that a bit later but um yeah that for me that's one of the one of the coolest parts of the job
1: hmm. and all you know all guiding is really an ongoing experiment it's never finished so if something doesn't work out well that's all part of the <laughs> learning journey we'll just try something else <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's so true, and I mean, even home gardeners—that's the truth. But you know, do you guys feel a lot of pressure having such a—you know—everyone's watching you. Does it feel like that? I—I uh,
2: I reckon. I look, personally, I don't. I think. Um, I think part of horticulture is is failing as well, you know, and yeah. and some people might not have a go at things, but. Um, you know, if we've never grown something, we might put it in three or four different spots in three or four different aspects or, or a couple of different soil types just to see. I think um, I find a lot of joy out of that um, mm-hmm. and it also sparks conversations with people. You know, I, the amount of people that come through the gardens and, and say, oh, I could never grow that at home and, and you have a chat about their soil and where they are and their rainfall, you're like, you could actually have a crack at this, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think it um, it's also nice for people to know that, you know, it, although at the moment the garden looks absolutely fantastic, we still we still have our challenges. You know, and mm. a and a garden's forever evolving. You know, it's not a sort of piece of art that's finished and sits on a wall. You know, you, you get changes in tree canopy or changes in the understory or changes in soil over time. Like it's constantly evolving. So I think it's part of the story you tell as a as a botanic gardens to um, make sure people aren't scared of failure and all that sort of stuff and just get out into their garden and have a crack at it.
1: Yeah, just having a go for sure. I think um, that's part of it, you know, even if, you know, things aren't um, working or you're, you know, trying something, as long as you're always trying something new or, you know, trying to work out what the problem may be or, um, yeah, just moving forward as long as you're not like, you know, letting it um, stagnate, you know, I
3: think Mm -hmm. then, um,
1: like Russell said, it creates conversations with visitors. I know um, when I first started on a smaller scale when you're saying everyone's looking at you, you know, as a whole, not, not really, like we're in our own little bubble. <laughs> um, yeah. We just get out there and give it a go and, you know, dig random holes and people come past and talk to us about it. But when I first started, I did feel a little bit nervous, you know, like, oh, my goodness, mm. it's the Botanic Gardens. You know, this is a <laughs> – you know, what if I do something wrong? But you realise while you're working away, um, visitors stop and just want to ask, you know, what you're doing. And as long as you're pretty open about, you know, we're just trying this out, this didn't work out, we're renovating mm. the bed, um, people are really interested and, yeah. Yeah. Um I think it's yeah it's it's healthy, <laughs>
0: so you'd rather wear those failures on your chest rather than you know a lack of trying absolutely yeah, definitely
2: yeah mm. we 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 have um kind of a couple of sayings at at the garden if you're not making mistakes, you're not moving forward and you're not learning and you're not growing, and the other thing is um Horticulture is all about observation. You know, it's it's understanding that hey, there there is a problem here, and then and then working back and problem solving from that. So you know, if you if your plant is showing a, a nutrient deficiency, it might be a pH thing, it might be waterlogging, it might be, but but just kind of ticking some of those things off as you go. Like you 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 learn to to notice well that that needs iron or that needs magnesium or that needs nitrogen or that needs a different soil or or whatever. Like you you learn over time. It's all about observation. It's a living science, Horticulture. Culture. You know, so we, we try and um, tell the punters that just just have a go and, you, mm. you know, you'll get closer to the answer as you, as you do kind of work through those things.
0: That's so true. So can you tell us about the research plots, the beds you've got there for specifically for research?
2: Yeah, so the, the research plots are kind of dedicated to, to horticultural science and it, it's really about bringing um, that part of what we do front and centre and, and exposing people to, you know, some, some of the research we do. So they've been used for, um, we we're talking about the Hamathria before, they've been used for the, the Hamathria lawn trials, um, looking at different treatments. They've been used for um, like uh, Dr. Meg Hurst who works in Melbourne has done a, um, a warming experiment on alpine brachyscone to look at plasticity within um, alpine daisies in response to climate change. Uh, it's been used for the Woody Meadow Project, um, which was about um, finding a suite of species that could be coppiced and, and, you know, like a herbaceous meadow would be, but a, a woody meadow for kind of urban um, plantings and that sort of stuff, which is a, a partnership with Melbourne University in the City of Melbourne. But currently the research plots have been used for um, trialling the horticultural potential of rare and threatened plant species so this is our raising rarity project, and this really is about, like, um, yeah, looking and testing the horticultural potential of um, species, and hopefully bringing them into cultivation. So um, anyone can come and purchase these plants um, and and put them in their garden, learn more about it. I mean, really, the raising rarity program is a is a project designed to, um, you know, it. Educate people about the plight of our threatened species, especially within Victoria. So every every species that's selected is a Victorian threatened species. Um, and look, the the idea is to um, get people involved. You know, I think I always say the advantage of um, being a garden over a zoo is you can't take an orangutan home, but you can take home a rare and threatened plant, you know. I don't think legally anyway. Um, and, and you can get involved and put it in your garden and you, you, it's going to spark a conversation with your neighbour or someone down the street and and hopefully they want to come back and buy some things. So um, it's been a really cool project. Obviously we don't um, collect for that, for that reason, like we will we'll collect to to put them into our kind of ecological collections or our nature gardens, and then we'll identify a plant and say, "Wow, that's actually performing really, really well," and we'll kind of select that out and grow it. So that's what it's being used for at the moment, which is which is kind of really exciting. And it's also a way for us to, you know, raise some money for the the conservation work that we do behind the scenes. So there's a whole bunch of stuff that we do from. Um, you know, collecting seed for the Victorian Conservation Seed Bank. We do, um, you know, population genetics and conservation genetics. Um, we're, we're looking to build um, representative populations of ex-situ um, threatened plants, you know, in the nursery or, um, you know, building stock that can be used for translocations or reintroduction. So Raising Rarity is kind of the, the shop front for a whole bunch of other stuff that we do at the gardens um, and it's a... a I call it the gateway drug into into you know the the real conservation work that we do. So it's been a it's been a really cool project, and it's something um, that we've we've partnered with. um, Full disclosure: this was a a Dr. Meg Hurst project initially um, with with Melbourne University, but we at the the Cranbourne Horton team um, really wanted to get involved in in exploring. you know trialing these species so we've kind of banded together and it's become become a lot big a lot bigger so we're looking at potential commercialization and and things like that to, to raise some more money and awareness but cool project
1: yeah and it gets people on board you know we've got every so often we've Have a little sale, Um, not that often, but if you follow us on the socials, we'll uh, definitely let you know when we're doing that. Um, And it's just like a nice thing. Once we've grown enough in in the nursery here, um, we can sell them and send people home with a fact sheet about that particular plant and where it's from and how rare and threatened it is. And at least then, yeah, like Russell said, it's it's you know it's in their garden. It's something unusual that you know family or neighbors might talk about. But also people can feel good that you know it's it's a little kind of hopeful message that you can be a Mm. part of that. you know, the money that you've donated by taking that plant home goes directly back towards conservation efforts, not to, you know, a hardware store, um, which is <laughs> like, you know, it gives people like to feel involved and that they, they've helped out a bit as well on the way, which is, yeah, really cool.
2: And I think that that's actually a really important point um, that, that- – like we want to empower people. Sometimes that conservation message can be quite heavy and people feel a little powerless. So it's a, it's a way we can get people involved and they, they actually feel like they're, they're making a difference and, and making a contribution. So I, I think that's a really nice part of the project, that, that engagement.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So Meg and Matt actually talked a bit about the Raising Rarity project on the podcast before Karen Smith, my mentor, uh, interviewed them. So if you guys want to listen to that one, check that episode out. Yes, for sure. So, next we get to the woodlots. What are we looking at here at the woodlots?
1: So, um, the woodlots line a pathway up to another garden called House and Hill Um, and the woodlots are kind of a a change in landscape from a lot of the naturalistic plant displays in the garden and these are kind of man-made rows of monoculture plantings of different eucalyptus Um, kind of signifies the clearing of Mallee country by um, European settlers um, when they were making way for kind of industry and agriculture because the garden it's next to, House and Hill, is a Mallee Garden which is a naturalistic kind of display Um, and so these rows um, are all different species that are most often used for eucalyptus oil production Um, but we also have on display um, a scrub roller so back in the day when you know um, settlers were heading out to this area it was called um, what was it called like an untamable wilderness mm-hmm. or something, you know, that it, it was deemed like unfarmable. Um, and so it was super cheap land that people could buy up in northwestern Victoria, kind of near the South Australian border. Um, and so they were developed all these different kind of tools to try and um, – clear the land Um, and there was a scrub roller which we actually have an original one of on display like a little museum piece Um, and then a South Australian invention called the stump jump plough was invented which we're still trying to source to add to our little um, (laughs) museum but um, basically that invention um, allowed people to till the soil without breaking all of their tools in the ground because of all the woody roots of the eucalypts that had been left behind in the ground Um, and then that was kind of abandoned a lot of the land out there after you know um this industry kind of petered out um was just left um and so they started replanting it um with there's a lot of um kind of oil uh distillery in that area so it was replanted with plants that will be successful they like the arid climate and they're water wise um and they um yeah are suited to that that area not Growing wheat. So, um, we've got lots of different um, species in here that are high in um, cineol, which is the eucalyptus oil. Um, And a highlight plant here that we have a couple of rows of um, is called Eucalyptus polybractea. And we, every time on tours, we stop people to check this plant out. And it's really special because. um, It was grown from seed that was donated by bazistos. So a lot of Australians might remember bazistos, you know, always having in the house like a little bottle of oil or laundry detergent or soap or something like that. and basically, they had a breeding program with Melbourne University, well, have, it's still going, I believe, um, to produce high oil yielding, what they're calling super trees of this polybractia. Um, and the whole objective was to basically double the normal oil content of their wild counterparts. And they were selecting um, selecting seedlings that were grown and um, breeding them based on um Oil, oil glands per leaf and leaves per branch and other things like pest resistance and things like that. So basically they could um, harvest the the lots more easily and get a lot more oil from them. And so, yeah, we've got a lot of these plants from basistos on display. And, uh, yeah, you can actually hold up the leaves to the light and see the oil glands. It's so heavy. Yeah.
0: Mm. It's a great smell. Yeah, I definitely grew up smelling basistos.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's so recognisable. <laughs>
0: Going back to the malleys again, if anyone overseas listening doesn't know what a mallee is, it's a Euclip that has an underground stem. It's like a massive tuber. And trying to I can only imagine, you know, when the Europeans first came here, the size of some of those mallee roots, like they must have been a nightmare to try and farm on.
1: Yes, definitely. And especially after, you know, clearing the clearing blocks with this scrub roller to flattened ground, you would think, well we're home and hosed here, we've got some clear mm. land. And then they were just ruining all of their <laughs> plows with these woody underground tube, um, ligna tubers that they had, then had to try and dig up and, yeah, bit of a surprise disaster.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's why it was cheap. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that the way, though? Yeah, like any gardener knows what it's like when you buy cheap tools or you know, yeah. <laughs> cheap soil or whatever. Yeah, what's the catch? <laughs> <laughs> All right, so <clears throat> we've we're, we're gonna walk through a little curtain of eucalyptus or a little you know sort of like and we're gonna emerge into this little hill. Um, I think you said a lot of people don't make it up to this house and hill, is that right?
1: Yeah, well, if you're taking the outside lap, you know, we've got like one kind of big, um, I guess, concrete path lap that goes around the outside of the garden. Um, But if you get, if you see the woodlots and the research beds, um, make sure you take a little left turn because there's avenues through that woodlots. There's an avenue um, and it will lead you up to a path um, and that goes to housing hill so it's kind of a little secluded um garden um, and it's got at, if you walk up to the end of the hill there's a lookout over a lake um, and yeah it's it's a really beautiful little spot but this represents the more naturalistic um planting of the, the mallee plants um, that would have you know been in these areas that we were talking about before that were cleared um, the garden is mostly um wa uh, plants just because the southwest of um, Australia is so diverse in plants down there there's so much to choose from this garden is mostly WA but we do have um, uh, beds dedicated to Victoria and South Australia because our Hort team has spent quite a bit of time visiting the little desert and the big desert which is up in that northwest Victoria part I was talking about earlier and kind of crosses over into South Australia too um, and we've done a lot of collecting up there um, of rare and threatened species and brought them back down to grow in the nursery and, and put on display here. Um, we're lucky to have really sandy soils in Cranbourne. So a lot of them do quite well on the hill because it's mm. so free draining, even when it is um, a lot wetter than it would be up there in those arid areas. Um, the water drains away quite crap kick. So um, it's a really good spot to display these Mallee plants. Um It also has a really different look and feel to a lot of the other naturalistic gardens. Um, When you go up there, you kind of see that lots of the plants are really small. They're really low-growing. They have really small leaves. Um, It's not big and dense and bushy like a, you know, like a forest display. And that's just um, the natural adaptations of the plants from these areas to survive um, the arid climate and the nutrient-poor sandy soils out there. Um, But dotted amongst that is these mallee trees um, and they're kind of, you know, lower growing um, and as you were talking about before they have those woody lignotubers underground Um, so I would say you know if you're looking for a uke to grow at home in your backyard or if you have a little front yard and you (laughs) want to put a eucalyptus in there you know they're not all dangerous they're not all going to lose branches and crush the house come up to house hill because we've got lots of small ukes they're low multi-branched Um, and the great thing about this lignotuber is, um, it's lots of dormant buds and holds a lot of water underground. So once it's developed quite a bit, if you find the tree is getting a bit too big that you can't see the flowers anymore, or, you know, it's past your windows and up to the gutters, you can just cut it back down to the ground, coppice it right back down, and it will activate all those dormant buds in the ground and reshoot. You'll get a brand new multi-branched small tree again. So it's, it's the perfect thing to grow at home.
0: And we'd rarely, very rarely ever say that you can do that, especially to a eucalypt unless it's a mallee.
1: Exactly right. Yes. Yeah. So as long as it's a mallee with that woody lignotuber, um, yeah, you can um, uh, cut it back again and kind of, you know, refresh all the growth and have new branches. And um, they're not going to, you know, crowd out um, any underplanting, like if you have a beautiful surrounding garden. They're really... A lot of them have really open, airy canopies with this multi-branching and not a really thick, dense canopy that's going to, um, you know, shade out and drop too many leaves um, on the plants that you're growing underneath. So, yeah, they're really complementary to other plantings in the yard too. Hmm.
0: Russ, did you have anything to add?
2: No, I just wanted to say full disclosure that I'm obsessed with eucalypts and have been for probably 20 years. <laughs> um, and I just wanted to reinforce what Marie was saying. I think. Um, you know, people, especially in the southeast, think of eucalypts as these huge, you know, eighty, ninety meter trees. They think of mountain ashes or, um, you know, the big messmates. But you know, there's over nine hundred species of, of eucalypt in, in Australia, and, and half of these, um, you know, around ten meters, they are multi-branched. They're really spectacular, a, a quirk of one of the, the smaller kind of mallies is they have huge flowers, you know, so mm. you think about a, a mountain ashy or, you know, they've got these little white flowers but you can get something like a, um, you know, eucalyptus macrocarpa which is huge, it's literally a, a fist-sized flower um, and they're, they're at eye level um, and, and I think the other thing is, Marie touched on it a little bit, the, the sustainability aspect of um, growing mallies in your garden, obviously you can't put, you know, at 50, 60, 70 metre tree in your garden, but you can put something that gets to five or six that's not going to compete your understory and it's really pretty and provide some nectar for the birds and, you know, you start to build those kind of little corridors in a different way, I guess. Mm. Like part of of our message at the gardens is to, um, you know, we're surrounded by... Uh, a lot of housing and that sort of stuff and we want like the locals to to know that they still can plant these species that provide nectar for these different animals um, mm-hmm. and and as Marie said, they're not going to fall on your house you know they're only a couple of meters tall so I think um, Eucalypts, eucalypts are much maligned sometimes, but um, just because of the sheer variety of them, you, you're always going to be able to find one that's suitable for your garden. That's super pretty and and they're really easy to look after as well. Um, and if you if you get the right eucalypt in the right conditions. Um, you should probably give up gardening if you can't can't keep it alive. Mm. I shouldn't say that, but that, yeah. <laughs> look who's
3: talking, mate. There's one for every situation. You'll yeah. find one eventually. <laughs> yeah.
2: Never give up gardening, kids. <laughs>
1: And we've got a few, like, really rare things up there too. So one example, when I was talking about, you know, kind of the highlight of the woodlots, um, but one of the highlights of Housen Hill is this um, tree called Eucalyptus lands and it's super rare. Um, there's only a really small population um, on the rocky outcrops of the Gawler Ranges in South Australia, um, and that's the only place it's found. But we have a couple on display here, and they're just really open canopy um, and enormous uh, pink like dark pink uh, flowers just so beautiful and it's something that you know could be um, cultivated more and grown in people's yards because it's so um, horticulturally uh, valuable um, and would also help keep it you know um, alive in cultivation since it's only found in these really rare spots
0: Mm. so true and look unfortunately this garden is one of the hardest hit with the, the honey fungus that you guys have um, we've you guys talked about it with Karen Smith during your episode about soil solutions, uh, soil problems and solutions in Cranbourne. But can you tell us about this Armillaria fungus? Again, just give us a bit of a reminder and how are you guys going with it now? Is it still a problem?
1: Um, yeah. So um, a bit of background, um, I started working here um, a few years back now, but I took over the housing Hill Garden that Russell used to look after. Um, and that w- was found that was kind of the ground zero of um, a plant that was uh, kind of transferred Drove transplanted to the site um, that perhaps had brought in our malaria. Um, And it's a um, pathogen, so it's a fungi, and the mycelium in the ground um, gets into woody roots of plants. So it won't affect any um, herbaceous plants or really juvenile plants that don't have woody roots yet. Um, But it will get into um, under the bark layer and basically kind of ring bark it, so it can't use that vascular system anymore. and eventually the plant will die. It might hold on for a little bit, but once the weather gets really extreme and it can't use that vascular system anymore, um, it will all of a sudden die. And that was happening quite a bit over um, House and Hill. And Russ and I were wondering, my goodness, um, are we that bad gardeners? But <laughs> 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 But thank goodness, no, it was just this pathogen. So we've been systematically excavating parts of the garden, removing as much soil and woody material as we can, um, bringing in um, washed sand, mixing it with our own compost that's all been kind of tested um, and replanting areas of the garden and putting in root barriers where we can to give trees a chance to kind of establish um because you know sometimes they would get those woody roots as they grow up and then they would immediately get attacked by this pathogen so we're hoping that we can get the trees big enough and healthy enough that they can kind of live alongside it by the time it eventually does reach them Mm
3: -hmm. um
1: and we've been yeah we've created a project that maybe Russell wants to talk about a little bit more but it's a project with um uh, Professor Stefan Arndt, um, and uh, he's helping us with this experimental design to um, make the, a few testing areas in the garden, um, kind of do a few treatments to try and make these plants as healthy and resilient as possible and then test their health um, over a few years.
2: Yeah, and I think, um, no, just on the back of what Marie said, I think initially when we um, Found that we couldn't grow anything past three years. We thought we were horrible gardeners, but it was um, it was vindication to to kind of find our malaria at the beginning. And and I guess what that sparked was um, where is this happening across the garden? And the first step really was to to map the spread of our malaria across the garden. So we um, took a whole bunch of samples. Marina and I went around the garden to probably 50, 60 sites, and and found that our malaria was present in probably 30 to 35 sites across the garden. So it was a much bigger problem when, than we first thought. Um, and this has not only occurred on on House and Hill, it's wiped out what what's known as the dry riverbed. So all of our, our woody kind of hedge material in the dry riverbed, it's um, attacked everything from um you know large established trees that have been here for you know 35 years some of those trees on house and hill um the the really early plantings to to things that we can't get past you know a year or two so that was that was the first step understanding the extent of the problem um and the second one really was to to look at all of the literature and try and understand how we could how we could um control this and give our plants the best opportunity so um Marie and I went to a whole bunch of different uh, botanic gardens across Australia. So we went to Kings Park. Marie went to Tasmania. We had a couple of guys go to New South Wales, a couple of guys go to um, AMBG, and just to understand what what different people are are doing in the industry. And we found that for the most part, most of it's anecdotal um, Mm. and we think, oh, we did this and that's kind of working. Um, So what we decided to do was team up. Uh, with Melbourne University, and uh, I mean, really, this is a this is a project that Murray's championed um, more so than me. But um, the like looking at um, a plant health strategy, um, so not an elimination strategy because it does get under the bark. It's it's impossible to use fungicide or. Um, anything like that so we after coming back from kings park they've done a lot of work on building the resilience of their their plants before they go out and also when they're in in ground so we use um a treatment called phosphonic acid which has been super successful for for treating um landscapes and and individual plants for phytophthora Um, there's not a lot of research on it for for armillaria but anecdotally um they, they thought it was doing um, a pretty good job. So we've got a regime of spraying those plants in the nursery and also missing these plants in the field. Um, we did a whole bunch of air spading. So we basically removed all of the the soil around the roots and um, ameliorated a new soil mix, um, which is really rich in organic matter, trying to um, encourage as many um, like as much diversity into the soil as possible Mm. um a a really important point is armillaria is a naturally occurring fungus within Australian landscapes and we we want to know why in built-up environments like botanic gardens and you know monocultures like orchards or or forestry why it becomes such a such a problem and we think um, that it's probably due to um, the the antagonists or the the, the competitive fungi and microorganisms uh, not not being there within the soil. So, um, but anyway, the project we're working on is is a plant health strategy, looking at um, raising the pH because our malaria likes a really low pH and our soils historically are quite low. So um, we're liming, we're recomposting phosph- phosphonic acid application. We're lowering above ground irrigation, um all of these things we're hoping these cultural practices will will encourage better plant growth um, so we're going to test that over five years it's a kind of a slow burn so we've got all these different um physiological measurements that that we're taking at the moment and we're, we're hoping um that a combination of those treatments might actually at, at least um maintain those trees in the landscape because we've lost some pretty significant trees even even at the the front entrance um so we'll um We'll jump on in five years and let you know how we've gone Daniel yeah. <laughs> but um, look we've got a whole bunch of other ideas as well so we're, we're looking at um, you know we'd really like to get sniffer dogs involved out out in the bushland to find where it is where it's not um, affecting the vegetation out there and and trying to you know with eDNA and sequencing of soil and all of that sort of stuff we might be able to um, find some antagonists out there that potentially we could introduce into our soil profiles so um, mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a whole whole bunch of work we're doing in that space. And look, we, we Marie and I had a meeting with um, AMBG and um, in Kings Park the other day. We're looking at possibly building a, a kind of um, Australia-wide um, consortium to, to to look at addressing our malaria because it's a huge problem. It's killing massive amounts of people's gardens across across the country and, and beyond, really.
1: Mm. and and like Russell said like you know it's it is a naturally occurring thing it's not you know a pest that we can completely eradicate um, it, it does naturally occur and so it's really um, interesting to hopefully work with the BG in King's Park because they have a similar situation to us where they've got kind of a surrounding conservation bushland and they know that our malaria is also in the bushland same as ours um, but it's not killing anything it seems to be fine so it'd be great if we could work out why it's okay there but not in the landscaped garden and see if there's a common theme between each of our bushlands, something occurring in each of them, even though they're spread all across the country, that maybe Mm -hmm. is helping Either, yeah, antagonize the the armillaria so it can't rule the roots and get away, you know, get out of control. Um, but also increasing, yeah, plant health. So with these tests, we don't necessarily um, need the plants to get healthier and grow like crazy, but um, just maintaining their health and them not um, deteriorating and dying is also. A win for this experiment mm-hmm. so um yeah hopefully we can work something out that you know that then we can share not just anecdotal evidence but a year-long study with um consistent measurements at several different gardens and then share those results with everyone else that might be having a similar problem
0: mm, totally you know just another anecdote guy Deacons came on the podcast a couple of months ago and he was talking about um it's a problem over in the uk as well and he said uh, when we removed all the mulch out of landscapes, it became a problem. When we put it back in, he said it was less of a problem. And his theory was that um, malaria, or he calls it honey fungus as well, he reckons that it's like a mob boss where it's like if it can't get its um, you know, sugar from from the things around, it, it, it put a gun to your head and it'll say, I'm going to take it out of your flesh sort of thing so he's like oh yeah if, if you've got mulch you can eat but if, if you don't have mulch it starves but I think what you guys are doing is taking a much more scientific approach and trying to you know because no one's done this research before you guys are really pioneering this research
2: yeah and I think look the, the mulch is an interesting conversation full stop so I think um Marie and I, I worked on another project where we trialed different mulch types over a year and, and we took measurements like um moisture and uh, heat and um, pH okay. and all of that sort of stuff. Yeah. So, um, the the thing we were looking at doing was insulating the soil. So high temperatures, um, extended moisture, like and humidity, seem to promote the growth of our malaria. Um, so I, I think. Um, you know, we, we had a mulch that wasn't really working. There wasn't a lot of air getting in there. It was becoming like a little waterlogged. Um, so we actually, on, on the back of that trial, changed all of the mulch within the Australian garden. Um, and and mm. with our kind of our malaria trial plot, plots, where you, we're using a mulch that regulates soil temperature a lot better, um, that doesn't, you know, affect the pH too much, like a pine bark or something like that. And also... Um, Creates uh, a bit more air and a bit more um, insulation, so I, I think mulch is actually one of the key ones. What we found was we we're, were looking at potentially using inorganic mulches, um, mm-hmm. like like rocks and things like that. But we were finding, especially the granites, were um, peaking up and down in temperature really, really quickly, and um, that's. That's kind of a negative response for around the, the collar of a tree. You know, we don't we don't want those extreme temperatures because it, it does promote the growth of our malaria. And I, I think the the thing to mention about our malaria is um, it it lives off living material, but it, it's also saprophytic. So it, when that tree dies, it can persist in the soil and mm. and just munches on dead wood. So it persists in the landscape. So you can have a tiny bit of root. And it, and it will remain there until, you know, living root tissue comes through and it will attach itself to that plant. So that's why it's so difficult to get rid of because it's not just, you know, it, it doesn't die when its host dies. It, it continues to persist. So, um, yeah, it's a challenging little fungi, mm-hmm. that's for sure.
0: Little <laughs> <all> fun <laughs> <Yeah. and> games.
1: <laughs> I read an article from um, I think it was North America or Canada and they were calling it um, a meadow maker because it will, kill the, it will kill the tree in the forest but it will also... Eat away the entire dead trunk and make a beautiful compost, and then you've got a meadow. So,
0: <laughs> and it doesn't attack the grasses because they're not woody. Exactly
1: yeah. right. Yep.
2: <laughs> and and I think I I think for me I'd never really um, just as a as a random tangent I'd never really thought about the importance of of having um, healthy soil as far as microbes are concerned. So fungi are so important. I mean they they are ecosystem engineers you know and like what marie was saying they can they can change um huge swathes of landscape into into grassy meadows or um so so i think you know there's a there's a whole bunch of research that probably needs to go on in in horticulture and beyond as to you know how we can maintain healthy environments for our microorganisms and how that can potentially promote um you know, better better land management and better garden management and all that sort of stuff. So, um, yeah, I think it's a really interesting space that, that people are starting to work on for sure.
0: Yeah, I'm really glad that you guys are actually doing something about it, not just sort of standing by and waiting for everything to die or, you know, because <laughs> if you guys can add to the body of research about th- this particular problem, that's a massive gain for the world.
3: Yeah. Mm,
1: yeah. And you know, it was overwhelming at first. Like when Russ said we went around and checked the whole um of the Australian garden just to see how far it had spread. At first it is a little overwhelming, but yeah, like you said, like what else can you do? Just wait for things to die like mm. you gotta just give things go, hey. So yeah, we're hoping that um it will give other people the confidence to, you know, dig a hole and see what's going <laughs> on down there and yeah, we can we'll share our research.
0: Yeah, because is it cheap to do this sort of research? Like, you know, just bringing in all new mulch for a site like that's pretty cheap, right?
2: <laughs> it sounds cheap, but it's <laughs> it's um, <laughs> it's not as cheap as you would think. I think look, and initially, um, you know, the the air spading um, costs a bit of money. Um, and look, the soil the soil mix is not too bad, um, but there was there was weeks and months really excavating those those root systems and um it's certainly a commitment. Um but we we are committed, you know, and we've look, we've done the hard stuff. Now now really we're just gonna um fog it with phosphonic and reapply, you know, our our soil drenches and that sort of stuff for um the next three or four years. And and now we're just really taking measurements and seeing if it if it works. So um, once once that kind of bulk of work is done, we're we're good to go.
0: So the phosphonic thing that you're putting in, um, do you say it's phosphonic acid?
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: So the phosphonic acid, you know, that's just a, a mega boost of phosphorus for the plant, is it? So it just boosts its immune system, sort of thing
2: yeah so like we plants have a very different immune system to us um so so basically what the phosphonic um has proven to do is upregulate some of those responses so it's okay. systemic acquired resistance so it basically primes um a plant and and it starts to there's there's research on um cell reinforcement so one of the things that that malaria does is break down the cellulose and the lignin and all of that sort of stuff so you'll find you know the the woody material becomes mush almost. It's amazing what it does. Mm. It, it just consumes all of that, all of those cell walls and and woody materials. So um, it kind of upregulates that and puts it on, um,
3: puts Hard it on work. guard a little bit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's
2: always it's always running with a high guard. So um, and and it is reinforcing some of those cell walls and um, yeah some of some of those kind of acquired responses. So um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Like it, as I say, it's been really effective. Like they they. Use phosphonic as a an um, soil drench from uh, plains across the Quongan, you know, in in Western Australia. So there's there's really um, you know richly biodiverse regions of heathland um, where they basically crop us this stuff, you know, once or or, or twice a year. Um, so you know you'll see. Um, everyone's probably seen the effect of phytophthora on a grass tree in the bush somewhere, you know, with that, that crown dieback and that sort of stuff. So it's actually been really effective um, for that. So we're hoping it, it can do the same thing. And and early signs, are it, it looks like it could be promoting that, but um, we will have to run the data because it, mm, <laughs> it's just <yeah>. anecdotal <laughs> at the moment. Yeah. 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 We'll so be back
1: in quick. five years. Yeah. <laughs> we'll let yeah. you know. <laughs> and that's
0: the thing, isn't it? It's not a quick thing. No,
1: <laughs> no,
2: no, and and look, you've got to be you got to be careful how you do it. The the experimental design is really important because you can, um, you know, if you measure something in the middle of winter compared to the middle of summer, mm-hmm. you're going to get very different results. So so we've got a um a testing regime that kind of reflects the the seasons and all of that sort of stuff. And you, you know, you've got to be really considered when you put these projects together to make sure. Um, the information you're getting out of the end is actually usable and worthwhile. and um, yeah. So, yeah, we've put our heart and soul into it, mate, and hopefully hopefully, we've got some good news for you.
0: Fingers crossed, mate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, so now we're going to backtrack through the little Malli Garden then we're going to turn left and continue our anti-clockwise walk around the gardens. Uh-huh. Now, the first thing that I remember seeing is the Arbor Gardens with a few climbers there. Can you walk us through what's happening in these Arbor Gardens?
1: Yeah, I'll take that one. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> I've never curated this uh, this garden. It looks it's so challenging, but I guess that's what um a lot of home gardeners um are like as well with trying to find kind of um climbers or things to grow in narrow spaces. Um, and so the arbor garden is basically a series of uh, stainless steel uh, arbors. You can walk through the middle of it, or you can walk next to it, um, and trialing all different types of um client different. Uh, native climbers um and you know it's on the edge of the garden so it cops a lot of um the elements, you know, rough winds, really strong heat, it's surrounded by concrete and rocks, um, so it retains a lot of heat. It's pretty extreme conditions there. Um, but it just gives an example, people can see, you know, different examples of, you know, how they grow, how they flower, how much pruning they need. And then also next to every um, row is um, a different hedge. So there's different types of um, callistamens, lectospermums, there's mass plantings of kangaroo paws, um, also just pruned into really narrow, long. Hedges, so it's just kind of um, all different examples, I guess, that you can use in um, narrow, upright spaces.
0: So I feel like uh, this part of the garden that we're entering into now really it does reflect a lot of the sort of gardens that I've worked in. You know, um, I've worked in a lot of acreages and inner city sort of stuff. So Mm -hmm. this is, you know, these arbors. I've seen a lot of this sort of stuff. So I think it's really good to give a native plant example of what we can do with these arbors. You know, rather than ivy, for example, which we probably yeah, shouldn't yeah. be planting in our landscapes anymore. Yeah, mm, definitely. Absolutely.
1: And, you know, there's lots of really, um, you know, famous uh, Instagrammable um, arbors, you know, like obviously wisteria um, <laughs> is a massive one, but, you know, we've got things like um, Pandaria or even um, Hardenbergia Comptoniana, which can really emulate the the same idea but is, you know, um, acclimatised to our conditions. mm. Hopefully we can uh, get that arbor completely covered and people can come and Instagram it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's sort
0: of a bit of a work in progress at the moment, isn't it, that area?
1: Absolutely, yes, it is,
2: yep. And we've got some challenges there as well because um, some of our local indigenous species, so Hardenbergia violacea is obviously the pinup for, um, you know, it's the purple coral pea and, and that's probably the, the, the most widely cultivated species. Um, climate in Australia really Um, but we because we have the indigenous species um, we can't plant that so it didn't get through the Mm. what we call the weed model so we've got to be really conscious of things that we plant um, that can affect our kind of natural assets
0: and that's because of the genetic crossover, right? So if a, if a bee yeah. comes and pollinates one plant to another, you've totally stuffed up the whole ecosystem. Yeah,
3: mm, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: So
1: if we have an Indigenous version um, growing in the, in the bushland, you know, we can um, take cuttings or seed from that and grow it in the gardens, but we can't bring in, uh, mm-hmm. bring in another one in, in case it kind of gets out into the bushland and eradicates our Indigenous one.
2: And unfortunately, our, our local Hardenbergia violacea here is a real battler. You know, it's a uh, straggly kind of. You know, it's <laughs> it's not a really strong strong grower. Like we're we're trying to encourage encourage her to get better, but um, yeah, probably probably can't make the Australian gardeners yet. I don't reckon.
0: <laughs> yep, <laughs> yeah. she's not up to it. That's all right. We've got supporting <laughs> actors, and we've got you know stars. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> So we're going to continue down now. Uh, on the right, you've got a bunch of ficuses. Um, so some of them, you, you can. Sort, it's really interesting to see just where that honey fungus has made its way in from up on the hill, because you know we've got the hill on the house on the hill up on our left. That's where the honey fungus started, you said.
3: Mm-hmm. And then
0: now we've got the on our right as we walk around. We've got the um, you know all these ficuses. What sort of ficus is it? Microcarpa. Microcarpa. Yeah. So it's a yep. a big monocrop of that. And yeah. It's interesting. Like you, you see one plant that's basically dead. Then you know next to it is something that's struggling, and then next to it something's struggling a little bit more. And all the others look healthy, but you just know you can just see this very slow spread of the of the going through.
1: Yeah, you can see it spreading through there, and that that's another one of the sites that's part of our um, kind of experiment because we know that it's there and there's several rows of the same species of tree that we can do tests on. Um, But that's a really good example of, you know, the kind of conditions that um, it grows in. Like it's um, all gravel there. It gets really warm um, and it stays uh, really wet. Um, mm-hmm. and the ph is really acidic um so it's kind of these ideal conditions it's not mulched with a really aerated like chunky aerated mulch um so yeah that's another spot where we're doing that um those tests um but opposite um the ficus fingers we've also got the Malaleuca spits um, which is kind of the where we started in the middle of the garden was the start of the story of water. Um, this is kind of approaching the end of the story of water. So it's the journey of water through the, the whole continent. You know, it's gone down the rock pool waterway and um, into the basin and what have you. But here we've got really long concrete sculptures um, that are inspired by kind of coastal estuary topography, um, and kind of to emulate, emulate where the river systems reach the coast and then the water integrates with the ocean and that kind of creates sandbars. Um, so that's where the mouth spits is here at the kind of the end of the story of water.
0: So we're going to, you know, we're no longer, as, as we follow the story of water around to our left, we're no longer going anti-clockwise around the whole, around the whole site, right? We're going to cut through the centre of it.
3: Yep.
1: Yeah. To um, the Weird and Wonderful Garden, I
3: guess.
0: Yeah. So I want to talk <laughs> about the Weird and Wonderful Garden. So you've got the, – this; these gardens really remind me of like Turak, you know, like that sort of area, like really quite – they look like rich people houses. And I've done a lot of the gardening <laughs> in rich people houses. and um, But it's really interesting to see. So one of the main things I wanted to talk about was you've actually got a coppiced eucalypt running along some wires there, you know, and that that's really interesting to see that we can actually do that with our native plants because that's not yeah. something you'd think we could do with our native plants, but there you are.
1: Yeah. So at the start we had the southern display gardens with like, you know, the future and the water terrace, and these are our northern display gardens. Um, and like you said, a mi- bit more kind of like um, – very pruned, highly maintained, um, more um, modern-looking kind of backyard gardens with, you know, decking and outdoor settings, um, lots of hard landscaping. Um, And the garden you're talking about there is uh, Greening Cities, which is just one of those rows of display Mm. gardens. Um, And that is kind of... um, to kind of give ideas of upright planting for, you know, more um, urban areas where you might only have a courtyard or a balcony or like a really narrow side of the house to work with. So everything is tall. So we've got kind of – Uh, poles for things to twine on um we've got a raised bed we've got hanging pots um and what you're talking about there is the uh eucalyptus gregsoniana which is um it's a snow gum um and because the branches are so flexible because it's used to kind of bearing snowfall and not breaking under the, the heavy snowfall um you can espalier those branches along wires and have a really um i guess like narrow thin uh gum tree if you want in your courtyard or um yeah balcony (laughs) you know you can grow them in pots they're in really narrow beds so there's not it's not like a natural looking garden it's surrounded by paving with a really um narrow bed maybe 50 centimeters wide um and yeah we just espalier those branches onto wires and yeah it's really unusual people freak out when they see it but yeah it's just another thing we're experimenting with
0: I should have said espalier, uh, I said coppice, I think. This was the wrong term to use, but yeah.
1: Oh, they do get coppice though, because they get quite big. Yeah, so right. if they get a bit okay. too big, we can cut as, yeah, you're totally right. Cut them down to the ground, and then we get those new bendy branches yeah. again that can be trained then you can onto the plant. Trained onto the thing. Yep. Yeah, exactly.
0: Beautiful. So what are, what are some of the other, like, I, I call them the rich people gardens. <laughs> what are some other <laughs> highlights from the rich people gardens that you guys can tell us about?
1: Um, Well, what else is along there? We've got um, the lifestyle garden and the backyard garden. Um, which are more, yeah, the, everything's um, very pruned. There's a few examples of um, hedges or topiary. Um, and then at the end we have the seaside garden, which is right next to our lake. Um, and that's kind of a more um, modern, minimalist, you know, there's topiary balls and it's um, kind of an idea. It still gives that really like breezy, coastal, grey-foliaged vibe. But it's a bit more like formal and modern and something that, you know, you maybe could put in your front yard um, that is, uh, yeah, really kind of like highly maintained and not Mm. just um, a naturalistic kind
0: of coastal garden. Something a bit more high-maintenance. Yeah. yeah yeah definitely.
2: So that that's the point of those northern display gardens to to put native plants in a different context and say you actually can use them in these heavily landscaped spaces or these really small, you know, urban backyards or you know, if you are on the coast you can still have a beautiful pretty garden that you can clip and and use topiary and you know all of the techniques that you would use for for anything else. Um so yeah, and I think I think it's really important for us to put it in those contexts especially um you know, as I said before, we're surrounded by um, urban development, and and in a lot of these kind of developments, there are, there are small gardens. So we kind of want people, we want to influence people in our our own backyard, um, um, to, to to you know come down and go. Oh, actually, you know, I can use these these beautiful Australian plants in in my garden, and ho- hopefully, you know, um, influence plenty of people. In, yeah. I, I say indoctrinate, but yeah. um, influence is probably better, you know. <laughs> yeah.
1: And hopefully, you know, there's a, a style that, you know, suits everyone. You know, there's, like say, so we've got the topiary balls, we've got hedging, we've got like raised beds with just really colourful, pretty plants cascading over the side of retaining walls. Um, we've got simple, like really small little lawns with a tree in the middle, Um you know, so hopefully that someone something will catch someone's eye that is the style they like but they didn't know they could achieve with um, a native species. Um, mm-hmm. And also at the end of these display gardens we have um, what we call a how-to garden and um, lots of school groups have their little sessions down there and it's um, just all raised beds. It looks like a cute cottagey um, veggie garden um, but it's all bush foods and um, native edibles. So that's a really cool spot to go and have a look. There's lots of um, signage about um, where the plant comes from and what Indigenous communities would use these plants for, whether it's like medicinal or food or anything like that. So that's a really cool little educational spot too.
0: Absolutely. I think uh, for me, just walking around, going back to what you're saying about the site, you know, inspiring people, certainly for me, I'm always walking around looking like, oh, well, that's, you know, that's we can put that instead of fucks us in, or we, you know, we can put yeah. this instead of that in. And and there was a lot of that going on. So I think that that's a really cool, cool thing that you guys are doing there because it's all native plants, which is yeah. something yeah. I'll, I'll mention in the intro. I don't think we've even mentioned that yet. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which is really cool.
3: Yeah. And, that's and awesome. I think,
2: um, I think I've probably come from a similar background as you, Daniel. Like I was a, I was a landscaper, did a lot of work in the southeast and, you know, through, um, you know, the leafy suburbs and you would mention a native and people would freak out. Like, oh, I couldn't possibly plant a native in my garden, you know, and, and you say, well, there's literally thousands and thousands mm-hmm. of natives out there, you know, and it, it's just the exposure. I think, um, you know, for some reason native plants got a bad rap and I think, you know, through the early 80s there was a lot of bush gardening or the late 70s where people wouldn't prune or feed or look after their soil or or you know kind of cultivate their plants the same way they would a camellia or a rose you know um it was just this kind of preconceived idea that a native would be absolutely Mm. perfect and and you know that's a lot to live up to as a plant that's a lot of pressure so i think um you know, having, having these gardens where you can put them in different contexts, like, starts to, to break down those preconceived ideas that people have about Australian natives and there, there is so many unbelievable species out there, you know, and it's, it's nice to see people come and go, oh, my God, I can't believe this is a native garden, you know, I, ne- I never knew there were so many amazing amazing flowers out there or amazing hedges or, or whatever it is that they're looking for. So I think that's, that's a, another really cool part of our job, like, getting to have those conversations with people and breaking down that stigma.
0: You totally.
1: Yeah, and like you said, Daniel, like offering like swaps, you know, like maybe instead of a boxes, you use a wisteria, <laughs> and you can show like those straight swaps that you could do yeah. and still have the exact same look, which is like a really fun challenge.
0: Exactly, and like you know, and even just okay, even with native plants, like okay, so um, you know, we've got a little on little johns, but do we have to plant little johns all the time, or are there other little rarer things that maybe people haven't seen that it just the same. Uh, genus of plant but it's just a slight difference like the the flowers may be bigger or smaller or different yep. color
3: mm-hmm. yep. yeah absolutely. yeah yeah definitely
2: and that's that's um a big part of our raising rarity project you know we we have um so many species that we think um aren't in cultivation that should be that mm. that um you know can fill fill those roles really easily and it, it, you know the more diverse our plantings you know i mean it's good it's good ecologically as well as um you know aesthetically for your gardens in an urban environment. Like plant as many different species. I've got, you know, probably a garden that's I don't know, probably 20 by 20. And I, I literally have hundreds of species in there from like the little herbaceous things to you know my malleys and everything in between. Like and 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 you see like building um a hugely diverse garden how many birds and insects and and also how much interest people people freak out when they walk past my garden they're like oh my god this is amazing and I tell them it's native and then they freak out again
3: um (laughs) like
2: how is that possible so like as we said before just um get out there and plant as many things as you possibly can and um like enjoy it there's so many beautiful native plants to be enjoyed.
0: the last garden that i will the last plant that i wanted to mention before we make our way over to gondwana land which will be the second part of this interview
3: mm-hmm.
0: is you've you've i can't remember what sort of a plant it was but you've pruned it so that it looks windswept now it's not windswept but it just looks like it's been battling the yeah. wind this whole life because of your pruning technique can you tell us about <laughs> yeah.
2: that yeah so that's the malaleuca cuticularis um so this is this is a species that's found in these kind of estuary environments so um, basically, these have been grown and pruned almost bonsai-like. So they've um, wired the branches down, um, and what we're trying to emulate is that that kind of windswept coastal vegetation mm-hmm. that you see um, with those trees kind of leaning over and shrubs leaning over on the coast. So um, it's a it's a pretty cool horticultural technique. Mister um, Miyagi would be proud of us, I reckon. <laughs> um,
1: and lining <laughs> lining of the mouth spits and the seaside garden, joining those two kind of water um based gardens together is all those melalookas that are all leaning over to the side and they really do look when i walked around the for the first time i did think they were windswept like it's such a cool unusual pruning technique but it really like ties the two areas together it's beautiful
0: totally
2: it's just another example of like having a go at something as well you know like you can do some really interesting things with with almost any plant and and having a go whether it's um pruning it differently you might might just tip prune it, or you might cut it, cut it back to the base, or um, you know, have have a go and see how your plant responds, and you can you can kind of tailor plants to to do different things in your garden. Like it's mm. nice to nice to experiment, and um, yeah, you know, what's the worst thing that ha- that happens? You might have to mm. might have to purchase another plant, um, but yeah, that's you know, I I, I know. Um, I've done a whole bunch of weird um, espaliers and toperies and all sorts of stuff with native plants that have come up really well in my in my past gardens. So, yeah.
0: It's just a reminder to, you know, have that. I don't know if it's like, you know, when we were kids, we used to play. And I think as we get yeah, older, yeah. we stop playing. And I think the garden's an opportunity to really get back to that again. Yep. And just yeah, if, you, if you have an idea, just go with it. As you said, what's the worst that's going to happen? You, you've spent money that you're going to have to replace a plant. Okay.
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And gar- like gardening for us is joy. It's pure mm. joy, like seeing new flowers, or you know, seeing seeing the way something reshoots, or or finding a new plant. Like it's, um, you know, it's a beautiful space to be in. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm obviously a career gardener, so I love it. That's why I do it. But um, it can bring that joy. And I, you know, I give that to my daughter as well. She's got her own garden at home where she. Does her own pruning and all that sort of stuff. I close my eyes sometimes, but um, you know, she's <laughs> she's, <laughs> she's fully engaged. I don't want to break her spirit yet. So you know, it's an amazing thing to share with your friends and your family and and more widely. Like it, it it's supposed to be a joyous experience getting in the garden, You
3: know.
0: Yeah, I think that the the play garden for your daughter is such a good metaphor for you know a stage that we all have to do as gardeners. You know, whether we whether we have that phase at home where we're pruning everything wrong, whether we, whether we have that phase on the tools. And yep. you know, maybe we have a boss that's telling us, "Hey, that's the wrong way." Maybe we have a boss that's teaching us how to do things the wrong way. But yep. yeah, every gardener has that phase where they're doing everything wrong, and and you and you have to embrace that. I think.
2: Yeah, 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 definitely. And we've we've all been there, hey.
0: Yeah, you know? oh, I'm still there. <laughs> yeah. Like I think, and we're all still there in our own way, aren't <laughs> <Definitely>. we? Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> uh, Russell, did you want to mention the We're in a Wonderful Garden? Because then that's kind of like the end before Gondwana, or.
2: Yeah, so the the wind wonderful garden is is sort of dead center in the Australian garden, and it's um I think people refer to it as the rock garden. So there's um a whole bunch of slated rock that has been lifted up and put on the side. So there's um it's quite a striking landscape feature. So it's like a rock garden you would see in um you know in America or or you know these these huge slabs of rock um and and what it does is provide really unique kind of horticultural opportunities to to grow stuff on the north side and Mm. on the south side um so this garden is is really dedicated to kind of plant adaptation Mm. um so there's a there's a whole bunch of species from the you know the dead center of australia to to the alps um and everything in between so it's it's really um looking at you know these little subcategories of adaptation so it might be um, might be huge flowers, it might be really interesting foliage, it might be really interesting growth forms, um, plants from different areas. So it's it's like a, a kind of treasure box garden. Mm. That's that's kind of what we call call it. So you, you can walk around any any nook and cranny and and find something new and and interesting. There's a lot of um Western Australian plants in there as well. So a lot of um, Cotyledes, so grevilleas and and banksias and hakeas and you know some of those really spectacular Western Australian things. Um, and it's it, it's also I should mention that the probably main feature apart from the rocks is the the Queensland bottle tree, so Brachycite and rupestris. Um, these big huggable trees that store an unbelievable amount of water and starch in their in their um, trunks, and they kind of swell up. So. Um, we have an ongoing joke. People call them boab trees. So, so Bronnie, who maintains this garden, is um, forever telling people they're not boabs; they're, not they're boab. Queensland bottle trees. Um, <laughs> but they've got they've got that kind of similar vibe for anyone who knows what a boab is. So, um, yeah, it's a really interesting garden and a nice one to kind of slow down in um, because mm. you do get those little nooks and crannies. Yeah,
1: yeah, lots of little crevices between rocks with. Like, really unusual stuff growing. Anytime, like, if people have collected things in the wild or we've found something weird at a nursery that's got like a bizarre flower or weird looking leaves, or maybe can err on the, you might say, ugly side, <laughs> you know, you're like, whoa, this is crazy. Bronnie will want this for the weird, wonderful yeah. garden, you know? It's like, yeah. it's, it's full of like such unusual stuff. It's a really good spot to, yeah, like Russ said, slow down and look between all the rocks and um, what cool stuff is in there.
0: <laughs> I love yeah. that. Like, that was so much fun. And I think that, that that the whole garden felt like that really, you know, there's not like one yeah. pathway you can take around. Yeah, there's one pathway, but there's lots of little nooks and crannies you're walking through and there's always something you haven't seen yes. yeah. before. Yeah,
2: and that, and that change, changes seasonally as well. You know, if you, if you come now, mm. I mean, we're in the, the peak of spring and the garden's going off, but, um, you know, you can come at any time of year or take any path and you'll see something different, which is kind of cool, I reckon.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, so I think that that was one other question I wanted to ask you as well is when do the gardens look the best now?
2: <laughs> look, I think now is probably um, the easy answer. So a, a lot of those kind of spring flowering um, families are, are out. So it's definitely at its peak from kind of, you know, September through the next couple of months. Um so, yeah, anyone who's listening, make sure you get mm-hmm. down and see us as soon as you can.
0: <laughs> but does that mean that it's ugly through the rest of the year or? No, not at all. No, I think. How dare you? No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like to ask the questions that make people go, no. <laughs>
3: yeah.
1: And it depends, yeah, it depends what the area is, you know, like on um, House and Hill uh, where I curate, um, a lot of those plants come out in kind of late winter and, you know, people come up there for a walk and like, oh, my goodness, it's so bright up here. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because, yeah, the the plants are kind of taken out of their natural area and or are growing in Cranbourne. So there's a few different things that do have their best time at a weird time of year.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, there's a, there's always something flowering and that, that's a consideration for um, plant selection and, and that sort of stuff. So when we're looking at a particular garden, we might, you know, uh, I think the stringy bark garden is a good example that we'll probably touch on a bit later but uh, that's a spring garden you know there's a lot of a lot of peas and um, mm. a lot of uh, daisies and and that is 100% a spring garden so for 6 weeks that that is the highlight of the garden but there's other gardens like um, the forest garden that um, you know, have a whole bunch of species that will flower in autumn and flower through winter, and um, it's you know it can be a bit more subtle. And you know, we like to we like to think about our gardens, even our display gardens. Like, what when do we want this flowering? Do we want it flowering when most people are here, or do we want to give people interest throughout the year? So it's it's something you kind of think about when you're you're putting together your plant selections.
0: So we've just you know completed the eastern side of the garden basically you know i'm sure that there's a lot that we haven't talked about yet we've only been talking for an hour and a half and there's so much more we could talk about but let's just walk across the there's a little bridge across the what do you call that the lake or the creek or what do you call
1: that yeah the am potter lake okay Um, and then we've got like a little lily pad bridge um, Mm. that goes across the lake and will take you into gondwana
0: so what is gondwana like tell us about the history of gondwana like what does gondwana land mean what does that name mean
1: uh, so, Gondwana um, is the garden that kind of represents um, all the ancient plants from when we were, you know, one giant Gondwana land before Australia broke away from that supercontinent. Um, so, it's kind of like a bit of a step back in time um, to when rainforest dominated like huge tracts of land across multiple continents. Um, there was emergence of kind of conifer families that like Potokar based Potocarpaceae and Oricariaceae, um, they were kind of like just the earliest um, plant families and a lot of ancient um, flowering Uh, families that have like primitive flowers Um, they're not very evolved so um, but as australia evolved and warmed um, we don't really have too much rainforest uh, left anymore Um, what's left is kind of just found along the eastern side of australia so we've got cool temperate rainforest in tasmania um, all the way up the east coast to the tropics of far north queensland um, and that's kind of the areas that's represented in gondwana here
0: so the the primitive plants you know conifers as you said primitive flowering plants um very jungle feeling and it there's it's almost like a few degrees cooler when you walk through there isn't it
1: yeah, it is. It's um, one of the areas that has one of the densest canopies in the garden so far. Um, the forest garden is quickly catching up. But at the moment, yeah, Gondwana has that really dense, closed-in um, feeling and lots of like really large, glossy-leaved plants giving that kind of rainforest feel, which is quite different compared to, you know, where we've been walking around, which is quite harsh and windswept and arid. Um, and um. There is an area when you come through um, after that lily pad pad bridge and walk through the path, um, there's a big project that's been um, undertaken and we have a big display in the Gondwana Garden. Um, It's called the Tromps Project, which we always forget. It's Tropical Mountain Plant Science Project. (laughs) But basically... um, Uh, The Royal Botanic Gardens um, Victoria and also several different um, kind of organisations all along the east coast of Australia like Seed Banks and other gardens as well um, all went on a few um, collecting trips up to far north Queensland um, and collected plants. Basically the... 3,000 kilometers away from here, um, in the cloud forests that are surrounding Cairns um, in far north Queensland, and then all of these organisations, we all took a collection back um, and have them in display or you know keeping in seed banks. Each basically like a meta collection. We all have the same thing um, just to shore up the collection because we know that mm. wherever they're taken back to might not all be successful. You know, we're so far away, 3,000 k's down in Cranbourne. Um, some things might adapt and um, turn out to be quite flexible um, and will be successful here and some things might fail, um, whereas further up the east coast there might be different climates where plants are a bit more successful. But um, these cloud forests basically are um, really unique plant communities. Um, their rainfall on these peaks is estimated around eight metres a year. Um so what some of the wettest areas yeah. on Earth. It's a, a really unique conditions. But um their obviously their um growing areas are um, threatened by climate change um, as as these cloud forests disintegrate and it gets warmer and drier um, the plants can only go further up the mountains chasing these clouds um, and eventually that mountaintop will run out um, and there's nowhere else for them to go and they can't really grow at the base in Cairns because it's far too hot. Um, so we're kind of trialling growing these plants with all these other um, organisations along the east coast to see how adaptable they are and maybe where they could be reintroduced into a different climate that they like. So you can see that Whole collection um, in the Gondwana Garden, and we've tried to make our own tiny little, <laughs> tiny little mountaintop with a little seated area. Um, yeah, and that's a brand new garden that was built um, during uh, COVID over the last couple of years. And yeah, so you can walk through there now and check it all out.
2: That's it's a really nice example of um, what we're doing as a broader organisation, looking at um, you know plant response to to things like climate change and trying to better understand plant plasticity. Um, you know, most of those plants have been genotyped as well. Um, and look, it's really been a focus for us definitely at Cranbourne over the last few years to start building sort of genetic and geographic representations of, um, you know, species, so individuals from um, populations um, across their natural ranges and and just um, I think sometimes uh, people can use Climate modelling as a, a a kind of blunt tool, and say, well, you know, the, this entire plant community is going to be gone within, mm. you know, twenty years, thirty years, forty years, fifty years. But um, when you when you break it down and look at things, so a, a really nice example of a species that's come from those mountaintops is um, the rhododendron. So rhododendron lochiae is a good example, which can successfully be grown be grown at lower elevations and um, you know, its its tolerances are much broader than than where it's found its ecological niche. So I think it, I think it's nice to explain to people that there's so much we can do, and there's so much to learn about um, plant plasticity and how um, certain species and in individuals within species can can evolve and adapt. And um, you know, part of part of our work is to make sure we're banking all of that genetic diversity, and then. Um, using that for, you know, as we mentioned before, translocations or reintroductions or mm-hmm. genetic rescue and that sort of stuff. So, um, yeah, as an organisation, we're really committed to um, finding solutions to these these kind of um, human made problems, I guess. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a really meaningful. Um, Part of our job, and and something that you know, Marie and I are super so passionate about. That's for sure.
1: Yeah, and there's a really cool example, um, in, in particular, a Pronopetes ladyeye, which is the Mount Spurgeon black pine. Um, that's there's a couple of those growing in Gondwana. Um, It's only found on Mount Spurgeon and Mount Lewis up there. Um, Usually it's growing at an elevation of 1,200 metres, but we've brought one back. There's a really juvenile plant growing in that far north Queensland area, but we have a really large one near the entrance. It's got the most beautiful, insane foliage. It's growing in Cranbourne. It was planted 10 years ago and it's absolutely thriving. So, you know, people may not have originally thought that that would work out so well, but we can already see it's doing great. So we've brought back some more samples and, yeah, just a really good example of how, you know, you give it a try and you don't know how adaptable these, these plants can be.
0: Do you think, how long do you think it'll take for you to affect the genetics, you know, as you're breeding it? Is this something that, you know, takes hundreds of years? Is it something you can change the genetics of a plant in a couple of generations? Does it depend completely on the plant itself?
2: Yeah, look, I, I mean, genetics has come a long, long, long way in the last uh, especially 10 years. So um, there's still a lot of work to do in in that space, so, so mapping traits um, mm. and understanding what those genes are actually doing. So uh, I, I think for us the first step is um, conserving as much genetic diversity mm. as possible. So um, we will go out and, and um, collect and our conservation geneticists will do um, the population genetics on them to understand the diversity within and between those populations, and we're trying to collect for that. There's a whole body of work that's that's really starting on on mapping, um, you know, functional genes, and you know, there might be heat tolerant genes, or um, that's probably the best example that are that are becoming increasingly mapped on on say the um, eucalyptus genome. Um, so I think the, the the breeding and the the genetic rescue is um, Purely based on diversity at the moment, and mm. and that kind of natural selection will will take place. So, so for for example, if you find a genetically depopulate population and you reintroduce more um, diversity, that's going to give that that population more chance of surviving because it's going to have you know I mean that's what selection is based on
3: mm-hmm. um,
2: diversity. So, but I think increasingly in in future years they're going to be um, looking more at introducing specific genotypes that can deal with less rain or mm. increased temperatures and that sort of stuff. And there's been a few projects, like they've done some um, projects on eucalyptus where they've introduced, um, you know, genotypes from other drier populations of the same species and use that for, for reintroductions and translocations. So there's a whole body of work um, that that is happening. I mean, it takes time and money mm-hmm. to do that stuff, but in in the short term, we just want to conserve as much as possible. Whether that's through the Victorian Conservation Seed Bank, um, whether that's through the living collections that we we hold at Cranbourne. Um, encouraging other um, organisations, so local Indigenous nurseries or private and public land managers to get involved in, in conserving mm-hmm. that, that diversity. Yeah. I think, um, you know, that's, that's going to become increasingly the focus for, for us to kind of help facilitate a lot of those projects.
0: It just takes so many people, doesn't it? Because you've got the horticulturists, you've got the botanists, you've got the blah, 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 and all these other things that you just wouldn't think of. Like it's not a small team that are working on this. It's vastly different skill sets.
2: Yeah, 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 definitely. And I think, look, you you cannot save anything by yourself. I'm (laughs) I'm a huge believer in um, involving as many people with as Mm -hmm. many skills as possible. And, uh, you know, that goes from, I mean, a really nice example for, for us last year as a team, we worked on a, um, a critically endangered eucalypt, eucalyptus ornans from the, the Avon River and we had a community day where we had um, people from um, local environment groups, the local Indigenous nursery, we had the department, we had the CMA out there um, and there was a guy, John Tapp, who runs a, an Indigenous nursery in Gippsland. Um, we were we we're doing identification of this species in the field and he said, you know, 15 years ago, I reckon, around the corner, I saw something very similar and, and that ended up. So so this this established type population, um, which was only thought to be in this really restricted area, um, became much larger because, you know, one of the locals actually had that knowledge and took us to another spot and then we kept exploring and then we found 10 more, 20 more, 50 more, 100 more. Um, so I think getting everyone on the same page and getting everyone involved, like it's just so valuable. I mean, you can't, you know, that that local knowledge is... You know, we might go out there once a year. I mean, he's he's been tracking that ground for, you know, ten literally decades. So, um, the more the merrier, Daniel. I reckon. You know, yeah, it's a lot of logistics
1: yeah. and a lot of people to um organize. But generally, people really want to give their time to it, and everyone you know does want to be involved if you give them the chance.
3: Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. It's it's something a lot of people are passionate about. So, mm. got, you know, if it yep. was um, you know worms or something like that, you probably have less people <laughs> wanting to volunteer, yeah, even yeah. though it's just as important. But, you know, people love <laughs> yeah, plants. Exactly. probably just under your big animals and your birds and stuff like that. Yeah. In the hierarchy of yeah, things people love. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs>
2: and, do, do you know, we find plant people are really super generous with their time and really, mm. like, inclusive and, I mean, it's probably because no one else wants to talk to us at the dinner table when we bring up plants, and you find another plant person. You're like, "Oh my god, I love you!" Um, it's true. But, you know, they, they are so generous. Like we've um, we've met so many amazing people. You know, over the over the last few years, just like hands hands on practical conservation work that these people are doing and have done for years and years and years. It's pretty inspiring. Yeah,
0: completely. So. We finished with the Gondwana Land. Now we're going to keep walking anti-clockwise around back towards the entrance way. Now we're going to walk through the Eucalyptus Walk or the Eucalypt Walk. Can you tell us about this Eucalypt Walk?
1: Yeah. So, um, kind of the end of the Gondwana Garden, it kind of like tries to convey the relationship between you've got the cool temperate rainforest. In Gondwana and the wet sclerophyll forests in the forest garden these Australian forests um, which is up next and so they butt up against each other like they kind of would um, in the wild. Mm-hmm.
2: So the eucalypt work, walk really is um, close to my heart because it's a it, it really is a design tribute to the success of eucalypts astro- across the continent so you know anyone who lives in Australia understands that you know the eucalypts for, for the most part of the keystone species of terrestrial environments and they they are just unbelievably successful genera that's not matched anywhere else in the world you know i mean there's over 900 species and and when you think of almost every every habitat that you go into the yukis are there apart from you know some grasslands and some remnant rainforests and some some coastal regions they are they are the dominant species and also the the arid interior but um you know the the there's a, an area of the garden that's called the the rift wall, um, and really what that represents is Australia breaking away from from Gondwana and starting to drift north, um, which increased temperatures and increased fire and all of that sort of stuff. And that's really where the when the eucalypts kind of became the dominant species across the continent. So they were, they were kind of pre adapted already to um, this, this changing um, in the climate. So they had the the woody fruits. They're unbelievably fast growing. They um, you know they're they're resistant to fire, so they have those adaptations like lignotubers or epicormic regrowth from their from their branches. Um, I always like to tell people they're unbelievably promiscuous, so they like hanging out with each other. You know, <laughs> um, so you know a lot of their diversity is promoted by that. Um, you know, huge amount of gene flow between different species, and um, like they're, they're you know for me, um, if you're a horticulturalist or a plant lover, you have to you have to kind of be in awe of the eucalypts and what they've done for for our continent. But um, the so the the gardens in the Eucalypt Walk are really just a, a, a homage to the eucalypts, and um, we sort of have the forest garden initially, which is about those kind of big, um, huge forest trees and and um, those environments. And then we have a whole bunch of gardens that's related to kind of the bark type of different eucalypts. So we've got the stringy bark garden got the peppermint garden we've got the the ironbark garden the box garden so so just talking about um you know those kind of morphological features that people might notice um in the wild um but it's uh yeah it starts with the forest garden do you want me to talk about the forest garden David? yeah let's start with the forest garden <laughs> Sorry, <mate. laughs> just just riffing um so it it starts with the forest garden so really this is um a garden that's kind of evolved over time. Initially, this was purely just going to be about the kind of wet sclerophyll, big forest, so the blue gums and the mountain ashes and um, associated understory. But basically, now this tells the story of vegetation change across an altitudinal gradient. So we start in the, the subalps, so the snow gum woodlands, we get into the montane, the wet sclerophyll, the dry sclerophyll, and then the the kind of tableland. So we're, we're talking about the effect um, that altitude and changing climate can have on. Um, species composition um, we many people laughed at us when we started the the subalpine garden um, but we had to go anyway so basically we went to all of the different peaks in um, Victoria um, we, we like to refer to the Alps as the kind of archipelago in the sky these are these are really restricted environments that are that are pretty isolated and and it creates a whole bunch of endemism and um, amazing speciation so we've got uh, we've collected six of the eucalyptus porsiflora, the snow gum species across Victoria, and built um, a little subalpine garden, so all these associated species underneath. And they're actually performing really well at lower elevation. So it's another example of what we're talking about with the, the Tromps project of species being bought out of their natural range and um, being able to survive at lower elevation with, you know, Longer seasonal periods and all of that sort of stuff, and they've they've been quite successful. So, um, a lot of those things are flowering a lot earlier. So, a lot of these shrubs would flower, you know, in kind of late November, early December, but they're popping out, you know, like winter and and spring mm-hmm. just because of the different climates. But um, it's turning out to be really pretty gardens. So, um, yeah, the the other story we like to tell in the forest is is the impact of climate change. Um, you know, the Alps is the fastest warming part of the country. Um, by far, and there are there are some really specialised environments that are, um, you know, starting to retract. Like the species ranges are starting to retract. So, you know, Marie um, and myself and and Matt Henderson, who looks after the the uh, forest garden, curates the forest garden, went up to um, the snow patches in in Falls Creek. So these are really super specialised environments where the snow hangs out for a lot longer um mm. so the growing season's really short so you get these like little herbaceous fields and really specialized species so um there's because the snow melts happening earlier there's a lot of shrub migration into those areas and um like it's making it more difficult for those species to hang on so we so we got up there and had a look at some of those things and collected them and bought them back um and it just just kind of nice stories to tell i think the People can always kind of in, envisage that archipelago in the sky, you know, that they are isolated and they can't migrate anywhere, and and it sparks conversations about what we can do and all of that sort of stuff. So that mm. that's kind of the the overarching message of the the forest garden. Again, the you know when you talk about the wet sclerophyll forests, um, you know, the mountain ashes, these are obligate cedars that you know are being exposed to increasing fire regimes and drier. Um, like drier seasons and that sort of stuff. So um, that's another conversation we have in there. It's really, really about climate change that garden and mm. and what we can do to kind of, kind of help and and mitigate some of those risks. So, but super pretty.
0: I think that's a lot of the garden too. A lot of the garden yeah. does have that theme of the climate change and the and the changing climate mm. as well.
2: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and and I think we we like to. Um, encourage people to, to get involved in their own gardens I mean that's that's part of it you know if we all if we all play our role you know I've got a, a non-irrigated garden that I you know have fed once in establishment and it's absolutely fine you know it's a really sustainable garden that that doesn't require a lot of inputs and if we all did that you know mm. um, but you can you, you can make a difference for sure
0: especially as you said with the ecological aspect of you know you're providing a food source for Birds and insects that may not have a food source anywhere else, like some some, yep. um, you know, birds, you know, um, will get to the rainbow lorikeets. They're fine; they'll eat anything. But there yep. are other birds out there that only eat this one specific thing.
2: Yep, yeah, yeah, exactly. And and look, there's um, there's a project here that um, a few people are championing. I can never say that word, um, <laughs> but the the Gardens for Wildlife project. So this mm. this is about really being considered about your plant selections and understanding, you know, what you can plant to bring in possibly some of those smaller birds like the, you know, the silver eyes or um, things that might not usually get a chance, like building structure in your garden, what plants you can grow for different insects. And, you know, do you want to attract micro bats into your garden and that sort of stuff? It's, it's a, a project that's sort of taken off and, and becoming kind of adopted by local councils and that sort of stuff. Um, and, uh, there's other projects like the Melbourne Pollinator um, Corridor Network that's that's looking at planting um, nature strips and and providing you know food sources for you know a lot of our uh, little invertebrates and all of that sort of stuff. So yeah, absolutely get involved and look up some of those things.
1: Yeah, and there's more. It's kind of important to consider those things um, too. Like you're saying, a lot of the gardens maybe accidentally have that climate change theme, but I think if you're a gardener, that is what you're thinking about whenever you're planting a garden or choosing a plant to buy Um, and, you know, with more areas being uh, developed, you know, for housing estates or industry or what have you, you know, know, insects, invertebrates, birds, mammals, whatever, and being kind of separated, there might have been a huge, you know, green area and now, you know, if it's just concrete or just lawn, you know, it may as well be a desert for them. That there's so, It's so separated from them to get to the other side of what used to be their entire habitat. So if we can help connect those two sides, we just split up with planting our gardens to help them, you know, still mm. be able to get through and have food sources along the way. It's pretty important.
0: That's such a great point because, you know, in the middle of the city, you might feel like, oh, well, what can I do, you know? But no, you're creating corridors. So it's like if you do it and then yeah. someone, you know, two or three other people in your suburb do it, it can make 100%. a huge difference. Yes, yeah. Exactly
2: my last um three gardens I, I live in the southeast and you know i have planted from from nothing and the the amount of variety as far as insects and birds that have exploited those landscapes once you build them you know I don't know if you've seen Field of Dreams, but if you build it, they will come. You know, it's it, it is amazing. Like you can you can have a real impact. It's mm. really cool,
1: mm. and not just and not just the uh, wildlife, but the neighbours too. Like yeah. <laughs> whenever I'm, I'm sure, yeah, we everyone at um you know in the hot team has the same stories. But when you're in your front yard gardening with a purely native garden with you know unusual stuff that people aren't used to seeing in a highly developed you know southeast suburb, um. Neighbours will stop and ask you, oh, my goodness, what is this, you know? And, like, everyone has people asking you what it is and then, you know, down the road you'll see someone slowly start changing their front yard, you know? It, yeah, it really does help.
0: That's so cool. <laughs> what about – so in the gardens, right, in the Cranbourne, so we're talking about encouraging wildlife. Well, these are all great. But what about stuff like possums and mice? Like, do you have a problem there with so-called pests?
2: We, we do. See – for me, I love the possums because they made it. You know, <laughs> like yeah. they're, they're the one thing that survived urbanisation. You know, and I'm like, nah, fair, fair play, possum, <laughs> well played. <laughs> um, look, we do we do have some problems with our, our tree canopy, um, but it is hard to stay angry at a face like that. So, look, if if a tree is um, becoming really stressed, then we will um, tree guard it, and and hopefully they can exploit another food source. Um, like it's just part of you know, I, I mean it's, they're they're part of the environment you know, and obviously they can they can be an issue when the numbers get get too big and and there's not enough trees around. But um, we just kind of deal with it. I think we have um, a little indigenous swamp rat, um, which doesn't sound impressive, but they're very cute and very fluffy. Um, but they they eat a lot of root systems, um, so we find them. Um, they're, they're probably the major problem with plant establishment, I reckon. So they, they munch a lot of the herbaceous perennials and um, they love all our little daisies and that sort of stuff. So that can be an issue at times.
1: They make little – they dig little uh, freeways under the <laughs> soil through all the plant roots and make that little highway system. Sometimes you'll walk on an area and there's a little hole. Um, <laughs> but, you know, yeah, like Russell said, they're also cute. You can't stay mad at them for too long. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. And, and the garden actually provides some pretty cool habitat for um, the bandicoots as well. So they, um, you know, you, you're probably a fair chance of coming to the Australian garden and seeing a, a bandicoot run around, which, you know, you, you rarely get that opportunity. So it, I, I think, um, you know, I'd, I'd seen a handful of bandicoots before I came to, to work for Cranbourne. Um, admittedly, the first one I saw was... Eating biscuits at the cafe, but uh, since then I've seen a whole, <laughs> whole bunch of them um, in the garden. So they're they're kind of um, running around digging digging over the soil, and um, that's that's kind of a highlight. We had a koala in the garden the other day, which was pretty cool. Um, we've had a in. Um, we're hoping a wombat doesn't get in cuz they might do a, a little too much damage but um yeah it's pretty cool and look we've we've got 330 hectares of bushland as well so there's a, there's a whole bunch of people that turn up to to go for a walk through the bush and you can see the wallabies and the echidnas and the you know the bandies and all of that sort of stuff it's a yeah you can sort of get your garden fix and your and your native animal and plant meat at the same time
0: Actually, while you mentioned that, I will just skip right ahead to the end. So after you've walked back out again, one thing I would recommend people to do as you're walking back to your car is take a left when you can and walk up. There's a little observatory area where you can sort of look out, and it's actually quite a nice view there. And you can see the scale of how much sand was removed from this site because it it was quite level at one point, was it not?
1: it was kind of a um yeah a, a massive sand dune here um and that that observatory point is um called the uh uh trig trig track lookout um so you can take the little path up there and basically um the platform that you're standing on was the original um height of the sand dune that was here and that was all mined away um to build i guess the city <laughs> mm. um and now yeah so that was all mined away and now our um like our, so our ground level now is so close to the water table. Um, that's why we kind of have, yeah, a few different, like, you know, terrace gardens and levels um, all around the garden. We have um, some areas benefit from that, like Gondwana, you know, does require a lot of water. So that, in uh, you know, that's planted in a really low-lying area where it can use a lot of that groundwater because we are so low. But, yeah, it used to be a massive sand dune. So that's a, that's a really good point that the tree lookout is awesome.
0: It's very cool because, yeah, you, as you say, you can see where the gardens are, and you can also just see the massive expanse of just bushland.
1: Mm. Yeah, yeah, and if it's clear enough, you can see both of the bays.
0: Yeah,
2: so it's it, it's actually the the point where, like, we're in the middle of Western Port and Port Phillip Bay. So when you're on that that trig track, so the water to your left flows into Western Port, and the water on your right flows into to Port Phillip Bay, which is kind of cool.
0: Yeah. So going back to the going back to the eucalypt walk now. So you mentioned we've got the peppermint garden. Did you mention the fire garden? Yeah.
1: So um, that's uh, the stringy bark garden. So after the forest, um, you walk into the stringy bark garden which yeah like you say is uh, otherwise maybe known as the fire garden it's but that's because it's dedicated to telling the story of um, fires within the Australian landscape and how different plants have adapted in those areas to cope with um, the fire and become successful in these regions Um, you know there's uh, examples of um, different fire adapted families like most mostly Poaceae, Fabaceae, like all the peas, Mertensia, Um It's like a woody heath-like vegetation in this garden under the stringy barks. Um, but there's multiple strategies that plants use to um, be successful after fire or during fire um, to either reshoot or um, recolonize. So. You know, there's plants that have lignotubers um, or epicormic growth after fire, Um, underground storage systems like tubers, um, prolific seeders, you know, that will spread seed everywhere. Um, And another system called serotini, which is basically holding onto seeds on the plant until a fire um, sweeps through and kind of activates them. Um, and a massive focus um, of uh, the Cranbourne Gardens over the last few years has been the bushfire recovery project um, after the 2019-2020 bushfires. Um, basically, in Victoria alone, those fires burnt 1.5 million hectares. Um, I think all across the southeast, um, it was about 17 million hectares. But, um We've sent field trips out to collect genetically diverse material of a lot of the threatened species in these areas, um, cultivate it and hold ex-situ collections and then they can be reintroduced if they're burnt out again. But a lot of them are on display in the stringy bark garden here um, because with even though they are adapted to come back after fires and survive, with the fires now becoming more frequent, we um, some plants don't get the chance to mature enough to produce the seeds or to grow those woody lignotubers before the next fire comes around. So they're getting more and more frequent now. And um, Usually, you know, the seeds would re after the fire, but there aren't really that much mm. seeds left in the ground because the plants aren't allowed to get old enough. Um, so we're going out and collecting and um, holding them, yeah, mm. on site.
0: Fantastic. So are there any other, you know, just for somebody listening to this as they're walking around the garden, because I hope someone would listen to this while they're walking around. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that would be cool. It's basically a virtual – it's like a virtual tour. We're taking you, yeah, (laughs) garden by garden.
0: What areas would you say – okay, so go and check this out as they're walking through?
1: Um, Well, definitely if you're going through the Stringy Bark, um, the Xanthorias are – I mean, there. When Russell was talking about the red sand being a postcard moment, these are probably the second most photographed <laughs> um, sections of the gardens. They're the oldest plants in the garden. These massive old grass trees. We've got a couple that are between 300, 400 years old, um, and they're incredibly adapted to fire. So they're old leaf base. Um, protects the trunk which is what that kind of blackened um, trunk is Um, and fire promotes their flowering almost immediately so those large um, spikes appear almost um, immediately after fire as almost they look like a beacon but they also um, act as a beacon too they provide really important um, food source for wildlife and pollinators that are coming back into these burnt out areas um, post-fire as the as the first thing is coming back. Um, But they're absolutely magnificent and they're in flower at the moment. So, um, yeah.
0: How do you stimulate them to flower if there's no bushfire? Do you just...
1: Uh, They naturally do flower anyway, but, yeah, sometimes, um, you know, they'll do prescribed burns in the conservation zone, like the natural areas team might do that and, you know, smoke will um, come over. So, yeah, we can't really... I don't... In my time, they haven't, but do you know if they've actually burnt them in the garden? No,
2: no, we haven't.
1: I don't think we can.
2: Yeah. Too risky? Yeah, look, I I think um, a couple of them are struggling a little bit. So, you you know, you don't Mm. want to burn something that that may not come back. Um, And because they are the most significant things in the garden, um, we'd like to keep it that way. Because these guys are are three, four, maybe even older, 500 years old. Um, So, we're very, very protective of our babies. I think I'd tackle someone to the ground if they were burning it, to be honest. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty epic to have something that um, yeah. significant on display in the garden that you can go, you know, right up to and take a photo of. You know, like I, I think um, – I don't know, it should have uh, velvet rope like you're at a museum. You know, they're they're really special. But we are getting um, some, as they get older and a bit more delicate, we are getting um, some special boardwalks built just so people, um, you know, their roots aren't getting compacted by the constant foot traffic around Mm -hmm. them and they're a little bit less touchable. You can still get up close and take photos, but, you know, you maybe can't – hug them and lean on them anymore so i think that's a really important step of still having them on display but i um, showing people how yeah like how precious they are mm,
2: that's very and true I, I just wanted to say like as far as like your experience in the garden there's you know we touched on it at the beginning but there's kind of nature and nurture gardens so it kind of um depends what you're into as well so if you come to the australian garden you're looking for ideas get to those display gardens and and um, understand what what's available for purchase and what you can put in your own garden, but you know the the entire eastern side of the garden really is a reflection of um Victoria's flora. So there's it, it represents a whole bunch of things. So the Ironbark Garden, um, we've concentrated on really richly diverse regions like the Prison Ranges and the, the Anglesey Heath and the Central Goldfields. So we've got the Grampians Garden, which is you know, really the, the Garden of Victoria, for anyone who's who's listening, if you haven't been to the Grampians, get out there now. Um, spring's an amazing mm-hmm. time to to have a look at the Grampians, but we, um, it, you know, because of the significance, um, you know, it holds over a third of Victoria's flora. We thought dedicating a garden to to the Gramps would be pretty cool.
1: Mm, and as you're walking, like, on from the Stringy Buck, you will come to um, what we're now calling the Grampians, the Gary Word uh, Garden, but this it's... Um, traditionally, like in the AG, it's known as the box garden because of the box eucalypts in there. Um, but we've slowly like evolving, and now it's becoming the the Grampians garden with all understories that we've collected from the Grampians. So, yeah. <laughs> I don't see
2: I, I think the the joy of the Australian garden is you can get a taste of you know so many different landscapes and so many different environments, and without having to go to the Red Centre or without having to go to a warm temperate rainforest or Mallee country or you know the the Alps, like you can you can get a taste of um, species that are kind of represented in these regions. And it, you know we we have so many people who who come. So I had a conversation with someone the other day in the the Ironbark Garden who was from. Bendigo, who had absolutely no idea these species grew in her own backyard, you know. So, um, yeah, come and have a look and get engaged in, um, you know, the plants that might grow in your area or somewhere you you're going to travel or go on holiday, you know, through the summer. Like, um, hopefully, it kind of sparks that 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 kind of joy and that love to get out there and go plant hunting. And um, yeah, and and also give you some ideas for your own garden. I think that's that's a, a you know that that is the um, for, for me the biggest thing like to to have people come to the Australian garden and and go oh my god I want these in my garden you know I want to be engaged with these so yeah
0: and that definitely comes across it's it's very inspiring to walk around the gardens because you can see how practical it is like it does yep. it does have that mix between yeah native like the native feeling but also in cultivation like, what about someone walking around now? Like, let's just say someone's in that peppermint garden now, they're just about to finish their tour and they see someone working there, should they go up and ask them a question if they have something on their mind or is it stay away from the workers, they're too busy, they can't answer your question. come and
2: see us. 100% come and see us.
1: If we get an inkling you want to know about plants, uh, we will talk your ear off. Please ask us the names of things. We'll tell you where you can get it from. Mm -hmm. We want you to know. And you'll probably regret
2: anyway because we'll follow you out with 100 plant stories and, you know, we'll we'll latch on to you. That's probably the joy of working in the gardens, getting people to come up and and we can we can riff about plants and um you know sometimes it is you know people who want to know about plants in their own backyard or um sometimes it's people who are going to go to the grampians and oh where would you see this and and you you know we have so many of those organic conversations that yeah the more the merrier tap Mm -hmm. us on the shoulder we're always up for a chat about plants Mm -hmm. for sure
0: and that's funny a lot of botanic gardeners will say that you know part of our job is is educating the public and engaging the public and spreading that passion with people on the ground.
2: Yeah, 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 definitely. And, and so, you know, that goes both ways as well. There's some unbelievable plant people who walk through the gardens mm. and and we learn stuff as well. Like there's, there's always, you know, it's a, I think that's the joy of horticulture. It's a never-ending kind of quest and thirst for knowledge, you know. Um, so, and look, we've got... Um, you know the Cranbourne friends here and we've got people like Roger Elliott and Gwen Elliott who are you know the really the pioneers of Australian horticulture who wrote the Encyclopedia of Australian plants we can we can lean on those guys and have mm. a chat to them in the gardens and you know these guys are walking around the gardens as garden ambassadors and um still doing volunteer work and all of that sort of stuff you know it's a it's a real native plant community at Cranbourne it's got a, a nice vibe
0: absolutely agree so we're coming towards the end of the episode. I've got two more questions. How can someone start a career in botanic gardens? Like, let's just say maybe they're a, a home gardener. Like, maybe they have no experience. They're just passionate about plants. Or maybe they're, you know, like me, a maintenance gardener. Been doing that for a few years. Maybe they have a qualification. Maybe they don't. Like, what what general tips would you give to anybody thinking about
3: that?
1: Um, I will... I would start by saying, um, for me, this is my experience. Um, I, you know, studied, I got a diploma of horticulture and I didn't really know exactly what I was end up doing, but I knew that during an uh, excursion we went to uh, the Cranbourne Gardens and I was like, this is where I'm going to work. Um, <laughs> it was my mission. Um, and I just gathered as much experience as I could in different areas at, like, propagation nurseries, um, maintenance, gardening, landscape building Um, and I actually went for an interview and just obviously sucking sucking up as much knowledge as I could from different places you know I didn't want to um, stagnate I wanted to get as much a well-rounded experience as possible Um, but really I applied um, to work at the Cranbourne Gardens um, really as a sneaky side mission to ask what do I need to do to get the job at my next interview? you know i I didn't think you know there was a chance that I would be able to work here because I hadn't worked in a garden like of this scale before, um and I just wanted to know what what should I do so I can come back um, but really, I think um a lot of places and I think a lot of workplaces would say this at the end too that they just hmm. want someone that is um Wants to learn. I mean, the one of the big things is you learn on the job, and you're never going to have the perfect, exact experience of working at your local botanic garden because they're all so different and it's such a specified um, job. So I think as long as you're hungry for knowledge mm. and you are willing to learn on the job, um, then you should just go for it.
0: That's really interesting. So you've had experience in the growing of the plants, in the construction of hardscapes as well, right? In the landscaping, or is that mainly softscapes? Yeah. Yeah. And you've got the maintenance as well. So those three factors, I mean, if you add a design to that, you've got everything. Yeah. <laughs> you've got like that's everything to do with gardening basically.
1: Yeah, but I'd never curated a a collection of botanic gardens before. So that seemed really quite intimidating um, to uh, go for and I couldn't really answer the questions that I filled those criteria. Um, but, yeah, it turns out that, um, you know, we can uh, – if, as long as you've got the enthusiasm, we can shape you into a botanic gardener
2: <laughs> yeah and and I just wanted to say I had a really similar experience so i I come from a, a a staunch horticultural background um so I did garden maintenance and then landscaping worked for myself for years and years and years, did some conservation land management um and just wanted to get back into to gardening. I'm a gardener at my core you know and and I probably had the same um Hesitation, as Marie, I'm like, oh, it's the Botanic Gardens. You know, it's kind of this unachievable thing. Like, do I belong there or whatever? My advice would be, if you have had a crack at horticulture, um, do a bit of study. But if you you are passionate about growing plants or conserving plants, throw your hat in the ring. (laughs) Like, you never know what's going to happen. So, I I took a a four-week contract. (laughs) at this gardens and I've been here for almost 10 years, you know, and and have grown and learnt so much. And I think no nobody, unless you've been a career botanic gardener, nobody has the experience of collection management or all mm. of the irrigation stuff or, you know, the the data analysis or the data collection and um, like you, 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 can't do that unless you're in the botanic garden. So I, I would say just have a go, you know. And and if you if you walk in and you're super passionate and super energetic and you work hard and horticulture is your thing, you're like you're 85% of the way there, I reckon. So um, don't doubt yourself. And that the the worst that can happen is is someone, you know, you might not get it, but you know you you'll get other opportunities if you if you're the right kind of person. You might be able to come and do an internship you know a couple of people who've ended up with jobs who, who've done that or you can come and volunteer or or just just find a way like if that's what you're passionate about just do your thing
1: yeah and that's yeah like Russell just added at the end there that's another avenue you know if you um maybe uh aren't don't want to work like a full-time job anymore or you know um, you love horticulture and gardening um, but maybe you don't have a qualification just yet and you're studying like we have a couple of different volunteer groups that um, help both with the natural areas team in the bushland and with us in the Australian garden um, that come in fortnightly and we organise you know things Um, jobs for them to do to help us with on the day Um, and yeah it's just really great like it's a massive help to us um, but it's really awesome just to get part of the community in and involved in the garden too so that's another avenue you can take to get involved in your botanic garden
0: absolutely look I think sometimes volunteering work gets a bad rap and internships and stuff like that because people have this idea that oh I don't want to do free work everything I do has to be paid I have a couple of things that I think I want to just say about that because one just because you're volunteering doesn't mean you're actually adding that much benefit like you may actually be taking up more resources teaching yep. you how to do this rather than you know in, in compared with how much value you're actually adding so you may actually be extracting more value than you're providing yeah another thing as well is that you know i think doing free work is how you meet the right people you never know how where your next opportunity is coming from like for me i've I'm a I'm a big believer in like volunteering. Like I volunteered to do this episode with you guys today. Like it's been a wonderful experience. I've gained a lot out of it, you know. Um, so yeah, there's a lot more to life than just money. And even if you're really motivated by money, sometimes volunteering gets you to the stage where you can earn more.
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I, I would say everybody on this current HORT team has done volunteering at some point. You know, I, I volunteered at local Indigenous nurseries. I volunteered at local friends groups, like got to know, mm-hmm. you know, the, the local conservationists at my, my shire. Like we we have all gone that road, you know, to to meet people. And if, it, if it's in you and you're passionate about it, don't take no for an answer and take as many opportunities as you possibly can, you know. I totally agree.
0: How do you think volunteering looks on a resume? Too does that indicate a lack of passion on the on the resume, or does that tell you, hey, this person's serious?
2: It it shows you that that person is committed. Mm. Like that's the path they're on. That's what they want to do. You know, I I, I think if you see it um, on a resume, you you see uh, like it's 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 a tenaciousness, isn't mm. it? You know, to to learn and to to meet people and and have a go, and it, and it shows that your motivation is pure. Like you. You want to be a hoardy, you know. You want to be a gardener, or you want to be a, a a nursery person, like. And I I think it's you know if you if you see that, um, I reckon it's a big tip mm. for me anyway. Yeah, 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 definitely. And it gets it gets you that foot in the door, you know. Like you you, you might not have the per- perfect resume to get a job, but you start to understand what what it is you need to do, and maybe what you might like to study or or you know as you said before meeting those people who can kind of give you those opportunities and and you get exposed to you know a whole bunch of professionals that are pretty good at what they do as Mm. well so you're just constantly learning and yeah,
1: yeah, and that's but, another thing too, like when Ross saying meeting people, they might not be maybe in the industry anymore and can give you a job, but a lot of the people in these volunteer groups um, used to do these kinds of things as their profession and now, you know, they're retired and they, mm-hmm. you know, but they still want to be involved. So they have such a wealth of experience that you can learn from and they could give you some hot tips on how they you know, got to their position or people they know um, because they've been doing it for so long and now they're just kind of doing this for fun because they still want to be involved. So, you know, if you're open to meeting new people and putting yourself out there, I think you can get some really, um, Mm. really good benefits from volunteering.
0: That's a really good point too. I think ambition's a good thing, but you have to keep your ambition checked a bit. You know, go into these things as a, as something that's fun, like as a passionate thing. Don't yes. go in there trying to get your job because that's how you get disappointed. You you yeah. actually don't know where the opportunities come from, so you just have to be yourself, have fun, show up, and that's how that's what I believe. Yeah, yep. and
1: plus, you know, you're getting involved in like um part of your community that you might not always get to meet. So you know, mm. you'll get paid in feel good vibes.
0: They're exactly <laughs> right yeah <laughs> and and i think
2: like the the big point there is like if you if you are passionate about it like you do it anyway yeah. don't you like you, you, you find a way to get there and it doesn't feel like work. You know, when I, when I was volunteering at the local Indigenous nursery, I, I loved it. I was freaking out. I was, you know, 18, 19. I'd never learn about any of those plants. I'd never learn about any of those techniques. I'd never met people who were so obsessed with growing plants. I'm like, these are my people. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you find out whether it is what you want to do at the, at the same time, I reckon. So, yeah.
0: And if you find out you don't want to do it, hey, even better. Yeah, yeah, perfect. <laughs> yeah, At least you didn't, you know, study for three years and <laughs> then work yeah. out. And then find
1: out you hate it. <laughs> <laughs> like me, I did
0: one and a half years of a town planning degree and it was- wasn't until my then girlfriend, now wife, said, Daniel, you hate this. Why are you doing this? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, that makes me anxious, mate. I'm glad you got out of there.
0: Oh, you no. Know? <laughs> it's all like laws and regulations. It's like I'm- I just yeah. want to like... <laughs> not have to like
2: with some plants
0: (laughs) yeah give me the garden (laughs) Yeah.
3: Yeah.
0: (laughs) so one question I always like to ask guests at the end of every episode is is there anything else you want the listeners to know about Marie can we start with you
1: um things I want the listeners to know about I guess um that okay so the cranberry gardens um You can, you brought it up before earlier, Daniel, you can approach us and ask us about the plants. You know, sometimes you'll overhear people whispering and wondering what something is and trying to take a picture and Google search it. Like, um, just ask us because we're really happy to share our knowledge Um, and, you know, um, get involved in our plant sale days and the Raising Rarity program so you can help um, put funds back into the conservation um, program and take home beautiful
0: plants. Great message. There'll be links in the show notes too, by the way.
1: Oh, beautiful.
2: And I think for me, um, you know, a big focus for us over the last sort of five or six years has been um, conservation horticulture and really getting involved, actively involved in practical um, outcome-based conservation solutions to, you know, some of the issues we have with the the bushfires and climate change and all of that sort of stuff. And I think I, I just wanted to say there are so many ways to get involved, whether it's like approaching your botanic gardens and um you know getting involved in things like the raising rarity program or like um you know going to your local indigenous friends group or you know getting on to study or um just finding a way to get involved like empowers you to to feel better about the world and and feel like you're making a difference and i think you know for for us over the last five or six years with this change of focus i've met so many inspiring people We're doing amazing things out there um in in gardens and in conservation and um you know if if you're wired that way um do everything you can to get involved because there's a huge network of amazing people who are going to provide opportunities for you and um you know you never know where you where you'll end up we couldn't we couldn't have envisioned you know the amount of work that we do now five or six years ago so um people look at things that have kind of fully formed and go oh they've been doing that forever but like it is one step after the other and it's a bunch of kind of you know for us personally it's a bunch of inspired horticulturalists who got together and said we want to we want to change the world um and we feel like we're we're making our contribution so so get out there and and get involved
0: love that message it's all about the small steps mate yeah you don't grow a tree over day do you it starts with a little baby seed, or maybe a graft or something like that like
2: yeah, yeah, exactly. Very small. And it is, it, it, it is those baby steps, mm. you know. You, you, you don't have to save the world today, but, you know, you plant that tree today and in 50 years, mm. you know, yeah.
0: And also it's silly to think that you can change the world too. Like you said, like it, this is a collaborative thing. You know, we all have our own shoes that we feel like. What are your shoes? Are you a generalist? Are you a specialist? What's your place?
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And look, you, you might have... Um, career academics um you know or you might have career horticulturalists or you know the work that you do Daniel like making sure that message is getting out there and people are um understanding that there's opportunities and things that you can do you know Marie works a lot on our um kind of social media and and, mm. and blogs and things like that to to help educate you know you could be a um a science communicator you could be a gardener you could be mm. a you know um a seed collector you could be a podcaster you can like there's so many angles you can take there's so there's so many opportunities out there if you your motivation's
0: pure Completely. For sure. absolutely agree mate thank you so much for your time guys it was a long episode so i really appreciate you taking the time i hope the plans are okay <laughs>
2: <laughs> thanks mate it's been great to talk to you
1: thanks so much for having us daniel it's awesome cheers
0: yeah it was fun if you haven't planned your next cranbourne visit yet check your diary Make sure to grab a coffee and a pie in the Boon Wurrung Cafe for lunch, overlooking the Red Sand Garden. In the meantime, when was the last time you went through the Plants Grow Here back catalogue? There are over 130 episodes to listen to, and chances are there are a few you haven't heard yet. And don't forget to upload your resume to the Botanic Gardens section on HortPeople.com. You never know who's going to headhunt you.